Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm torn, actually. Oh, okay. The thing I wanted to talk about here is, uh, well, first, it's, it's weird having opinions at all in the Golden Globe nominations. I normally don't sure. care. But uh, there were some interesting ones this year that I wanted to point out. I wanted to point out one thing that I'm glad they did, one thing I'm not glad they did. First off, if you're going to talk about the TV nominations, oh, I got nothing for you because I, I didn't uh, even bother yeah, I don't know either. Okay. No. Um, now, to hear you and pretty much everyone else tell it, John Favreau's The Lion King doesn't deserve to be nominated for anything ever. That's correct. But I love, can't tell you how much I love that the Golden Globes nominated it as best animated film. Expressly against Disney's wishes. Yes, Disney did not. Who would have thought that the the Golden Globes have such? uh, I know. Well, balls, I guess. Yeah, or they're just like trolling. Yeah. Um, And I love that. I like. I love it so much that I actually hope it wins now. Yeah. Because uh, Disney is insisting on referring to this as a live action film, despite the fact that it is by almost any definition of the word an animated film. Yeah. Um, They didn't submit it as an animated film for. The Oscars, which I guess in the Oscars, you have to be submitted to be nominated in the category. I think so. Like, I don't think the Oscars could do this based on their system. Yeah, I don't think so. I think they have more rules. Um, And the funniest thing I saw was the little like uh, Twitter and Instagram, like social media thing that Disney put out because it was also nominated for. Uh, Beyonce's song was nominated for best mm-hmm. original song. And so Disney and tw- did like tweeted out a thing that was like the Lion King recipient, like nominated for two golden globes, including best original song. Yeah. And it was like, uh, they're just refusing to acknowledge that they made an animated movie, yeah. which is funny to me. The golden globes did it. It's also, I'm like, there's a part of me that's a little like, Hey, a lot of like animators and people worked on this movie and it's kind yeah. of fucked up to like, um, pretend they didn't yeah that's true like the re like it is an achievement i mean i don't like the movie as you know but what it is is an artistic achievement and by saying it's like or no it's, it's, it's like we got those right. uh those lions out there yeah yeah that's what they want you to think somehow yeah um and the thing the other thing which i'm not going to go so far as to say they got it wrong but it's a conversation okay that i think we need to be having from a categorization standpoint um well here's something to say okay they nominated The Farewell for right. Best Foreign Language Film. Now, The Farewell is an American film. Right. The category is foreign language. Yeah, Apocalypto had been nominated in that category as well. But here's the issue. In an increasingly diversifying nation mm. with no official, official national language, yeah. this isn't going to be a one-time thing. I think we're going to see more... Yeah. American films that are largely in, uh, in non-English languages. Yeah. And do we need to reassess what that category means? Well, I also, you know, does it have to be non-American and non-English? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then like, are they going to be at some point, will they uh, have to measure out? Cause there are a lot of movies that are sort of both. Um, yeah, I no, think that, something that is like, actually, I think by the, the Academy, cause the Academy also does foreign language in, um, it honestly, I think it actually is a percentage of dialogue and I think hmm. the farewell does qualify for foreign language, but I'm saying putting our future <laughs> glasses yeah. on, maybe we need to rethink this, you know, like, I mean, personally, I, I'd be fine with abolishing the category in general and just looking at all movies on the, 
uh, on the same I, I, page, I, but idealistically, I understand that's sort of like you know, it's like the comedy say, like, drama thing, or it's like the actor actress thing, like yeah. just not you know, just but when you look at the the number, we're not to parody yet in uh, yeah. in the well, the right. choices that we have. Men are better actors until women can <laughs> yeah. be better than what they uh, are. They don't have as many <laughs> opportunities and as many roles. Um, oh yeah, that's another take. Uh, <laughs> and so. I like the foreign categories because something like Portrait, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is almost certain to end up on my personal top 10 of sure. the year, is not going to get nominated for Best Picture outside of that. Yeah, there'd that probably category. only be room for maybe one or two movies like A Parasite or A Roma Pain or something Glory, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, and it does bring up something. Well, also... Like everybody else, I'm not 100% sure what the Hollywood foreign press is. Right. Uh, yeah, so exactly. what do they consider foreign? I don't even know. Yeah. Um, but so yeah. I, I just, uh, because I feel like not only, the, well, like you said, go ahead. The Oscars went, they're doing a name change too, aren't they, for, for, for foreign oh, film? I didn't know that. Or maybe there's like a push for it. Maybe that's what it is. Because it's actually rooted in the idea when Alfonso Cuaron was talking about the foreign films he watched and they were all American films. And so as I think the the filmmaking community embraces more outside talent and, and give right. people... And in some ways Hollywood is increasingly making movies for the global market. Yes. And so... I, maybe that's what it is. I read an article that there was like, this was a while ago, but like I read that there was sort of a push to rename the foreign category to, I don't remember what it was going to be, yeah. but yeah, essentially this idea that, well, everything's, everything's foreign to somebody. Yeah. Um, but the thing about the farewell, especially is it's not like, cause you mentioned there are other like apocalypto. I'm not sure how, uh, passion of the Christ was ever nominated, but that, Oh, I don't remember that would have qualified. It's entirely, mm-hmm. none of it's in English at all. Um, same with Apocalypto, but it's not just that the farewell is an American film. It's that I feel like it is a film made for an American audience in many ways. Right. It's, it's, you've seen it, right? Uh, not yet. Oh, no. okay. I thought you had, um, I do think that it's made, it's made by an American. The lead character is an American. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it is assuming sort of, a uh, sympathy with the lead character from the point of view, like it's, 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 a pers- it's assuming most people who watch it will be Americans. Yeah. It's a perspective issue as, as well. Like I have a friend who is, um, he's American, uh, but he is of Korean heritage and he has family members that still live in South Korea. Don't speak English. He speaks both. And so he is often in a similar type of position mm-hmm. where he's sort of balancing like the old traditions when he goes to visit his family or when he's here, uh, but if there was a movie made about his family and he was going to visit them or something like that, so it was mostly in Korean, it's still 100% an American yeah. perspective. Um, yeah, yeah so that's why the farewell oh, seems like a weirder... Yeah. Uh, it seems worth... It's different than Apocalypto in that yeah. sense. Because um, Apocalypto is, you know, uh, it could be subtitled in any language. Sure, it could be, sure. It would be essentially the same movie. All right. <clears throat> uh, let's talk about... Tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, I use them each and every day of my life. And uh, I was listening today to uh, the song that I'm sure all of us have been listening to a lot and will be listening to for the next couple weeks. All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. Um, 
Which, is there, I don't know, you listen to a lot of Christmas music this time of year. Yes. Is there a more recent inductee into the canon than All I Want for Christmas is You? Well, that, I have no idea, because, and I don't even know how old that song is, like, that's been around a while as far as I'm yeah, concerned. Yeah, I think over 20 years. Yeah. Um, so, but is there a newer song that is like, not that I'm aware of. I mean, you know, Jen and I love listening to Christmas Unicorn by Sufjan Stevens, but I'd say that's hardly the canon. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was, yeah, I was also listening to, um, the she and him Christmas album, you know, she and him. They have two of them. Oh, they, do they? Yeah. Um, the first one's better. Uh, is that the one that has uh, Christmas Day? Like, uh, I'll, I'll never... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the first one, right? Yeah. That's the one I was listening to. Um, and yeah, th- that's good stuff, but none of it's yeah. in the canon now, yeah. the way that, that, that All I Want for Christmas is You is. Anyway, it sounded great on my TweakedArdio.com earbuds. Uh, they're available at a low, low price at TweakedArdio.com, but if you use the offer code PRETENSION at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to TweakedArdio.com and use the offer code PRETENSION. Tyler? Yes. Let's get all the way into it. Shall we? <laughs> I don't like that. Well, we have a lot of shit to talk about today. A decade's worth, in fact. So, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking it up. So the song This Christmas... Uh, you know, I, I gave you my heart, right? That's is that what Christmas. it is? Oh no. Last Christmas. Okay. Well, there's a song. This, sorry. There, that's right. Uh, you gave it away this year to save me from tears. I'll give it to someone special. Special. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, thank you for setting me up for that. Um, yeah. Sorry. There's a, I'm sorry. There's a Chris Brown song called this Christmas and that's one that has been around for uh, a few right. years no, now. Yeah, now that you mentioned that I do know that song. It is actually a good song. I, well, he's don't... not a bad musician. He's just a horrible person. <laughs> he's a really bad person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a, like the jury's not out. He's a bad yeah, person. Yeah. He's flagrantly. Yeah. Uh, like if he were, if he were a villain in a movie, I'd be like, you're, you're laying it on too thick. Yeah. Surely nobody is this bad. But I felt like you said, he's not bad. Yeah. He's not bad, but he's also, I don't think there's any other Chris Brown songs that are good enough that I'm like, that I have to tell myself not to listen to that. Like I've been, uh, I didn't see Finding Neverland, but I've been trying to listen to Michael Jackson less. Okay. Not entirely successful because I mm-hmm. like listening to Michael Jackson. Uh, yeah. Billy Jean's just, just such a great song. Um, yeah. Smooth but, Criminal. Uh, I am, I really yeah. enjoy Smooth Criminal. Um, uh, Dirty Diana. Um, anyway, that's not the point. We could name great Michael Jackson songs all day. I don't have to like talk myself out of listening to Chris Brown's songs for the most part. So he's not right. that, he's, he's not, yeah, he's not bad as an artist but he's not that great either if it weren't for that i'll say this if it weren't for that wedding thing where uh the people are walking down the aisle listening to his song the name of which i have forgotten already um and it's a fun thing that like the wedding party decided to do and then the office paid more than homage to it they just ripped it off um and the song is the song is uh, catchy, um, but yeah, I don't go out. I certainly don't go out of my way to listen to him. And yeah. admittedly, my life is not such that uh, his song, his music will just okay. come on. Um, All right, so okay, Todd, we got to get into it. Yes, we really do. We're going to look back at the last decade uh, and talk about our favorite films. We're also going to talk about some of our least favorite films, some underrated and overrated yeah. uh, films. I'm very excited to get into it. I don't want to waste any time. I think I should start because we're going to go back and forth. Mm-hmm. I think I should start because 
I don't think you've seen my number one film of the decade. Which is exactly what happened 10 years ago when I didn't see This Is England, which was your, your number one of the decade. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, have I, do you think I've, have I seen your number one? I am. Yes. Yes, okay. you have. Um, in fact, I think you've, well, uh, I think you've seen most of my list. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, uh, and I will say that it's not that I'm getting necessarily wistful, but you know, you do this show week to week and it's just part of your life. And then you don't, it's only the occasional milestone, like 500 episodes or whatever, or 10 years. But when you realize that like, Oh, we've done like, this is now our second decade, decade best episode. Not, I mean, not that we had started, you know, not that we were podcasting through the bulk of the, the, the odds, right. but we yeah, started in 2007. We've, yeah. We've been, but this show's been on the entire decade. Yeah. This is one where like, list, like if people were listening the whole time, <laughs> they might be able to predict this because these are movies we've talked about on the yeah. show. I would yeah. assume. I also went back, uh, for some of these, <laughs> at least that came out in the second half of the decade. I went back and listened to snatches of our movie journals mm. from when I first saw yeah. uh, these movies. Um, that's something that I'll do for like year end stuff. Yeah. Um, um, so, um, and okay. Sorry. One more thing from a, from the standpoint of uh, method here, I will say that when we get to the end of the decade, I try to, I try to be this weird, indecipherable mixture of objective and subjective. Okay. Um, it's objective okay. in that I try to look at, at movies that achieve everything that I think the artist is going for. It is subjective because obviously it's limited to what I've seen and, sure. and it's lim- And I've decided, cause I don't think I did this 10 years ago. This is limited to movies that I love the, the movies sure. that are in the top 10 and, and honorable mention. So like, but that's the thing is 10 years ago, there's such, I think I was younger and I think I was like, okay, well, you know, I mean, my, my liking a movie doesn't make it good. And it's just like, now I'm just embracing it. Um, yeah, that's some good. Of, that's good. I think, I think I did the same thing. Yeah, some of my personal, like number ones of, of previous years are not on here because they don't fit the larger criteria, but I also am not going to incorporate something here that I didn't adore. Um, what I was surprised by <clears throat> kind of surprised myself is in, in my top 10 round mentions how few of these films I've revisited. A lot of them I've only seen once, but my criteria was these are the movies that I find myself thinking about a lot. Sure. That's a big one. And, and, and so uh, that's really how, how I, how I picked it. I also, I don't know if it was because I was in, if I went too far in trying to avoid recency bias, I don't have anything from 2019 on my list. There I'll tell is, you right now, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Uncut Gems were both contenders. Uh, Parasite was a contender for me. That Speaking of movies that I've <laughs> thought about, mm-hmm. that one I have been thinking, it has haunted me, that movie. Mm. Um, um, so, uh, okay. So, yeah, and so I, yeah, nothing from 2010. And then also, I'll say, we're, we're not doing the top 10 yet. We're doing some of this stuff first. But, um, Half of my tw- my top ten came out in 2016. Oh, I didn't write down the year. Damn it! Or I should say, at least two of these came out in 2017 in the U.S. But are are 2016? Uh, yeah, two of them are came out in the 20, in 2017 year, but are 2016 movies. In my top ten, 
there's a very nice representation of 2014. And I which, have nothing from that. Which is fascinating to me. Um, not, not, not. Okay. Well, uh, I was, I was, I was going to try to guess, but yeah. I don't want to do well, that. I'm not, and I'm not judging you. It's more just like, for example, like when I show my students movies, uh, from the last several years, I find myself, I don't mean to do this cause I, I do want to try and show them more recent movies. I found myself like, Oh, three out of the 16 movies that I could show from any time period, from any country are American films from 2014. It's think, very okay. strange. And don't tell me anything. I'm not even going to look at you to save any of these on the list. I'm trying to remember what are 2014 movies. Gone girl. Gone girl is a 2014 movie. Yeah. Inherent vice. Or that's 2015. That's four. That's 14. I think. Okay. I'm trying to think. What Actually, I, what, no, I'm not sure. I think it's 14. American movies, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get to them. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm, we're going to start with the same, same way we do our, our, and this is Tyler's idea. I'm glad he came up with it. It gave me a fun thing to do during my lunch break today. Um, <laughs> so we're going to do the same format. We do our year end list, which means we're starting all the way at the bottom mm-hmm. with worst movie yeah. of the decade, what we think is the worst movie. And this was, I will say, because there's only one slot, and, well, there are a few with only one slot. Of the ones with one slot, this was the hardest for me to narrow down. I had three. Overrated was hard for me to narrow okay. down. Okay. Um, uh, I had three very strong contenders. Okay. One of them is Suburbicon. Wow. Okay. Maybe one of the worst movies of the decade. The other one I'm not going to say because it honestly might be yours uh, <laughs> because this is a movie that you hate. D- uh, doubtful. I don't think you've seen my worst. Okay. Well, movie. then I also considered Vice as the worst movie of the decade. I just dis- that was in contention. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But the one I landed on, what I think is the worst movie of the decade, the movie that my wife Natalie thinks is the worst movie she's ever seen in her life. Oh my gosh! This is exciting. Is Passengers. Oh, sure. Yes. The, uh, Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and, and, and it's sort of like vice is terrible because it's so superficial and so mm-hmm. smug passengers. And in a, in a similar way, suburbicon are movies that like, by the end I was like, what were they thinking? What were they thinking making this movie? Along those lines, uh, a finalist for me was the cobbler, oh, which, uh, which is, such a what were they thinking movie um and not that i've not that i want to uh, bust in on you right now but i do think that so many of the movies that i hate mm-hmm. there is a certain lack of awareness and what were they yeah. thinking it's like well they were thinking something but they clearly weren't thinking what most people will think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, and with the movies that you've, that you've just listed it, with vice, maybe being the exception, I think they were thinking very clearly about a specific, you know, uh, about an audience that's going to be extremely sympathetic. And in many cases was, um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but passengers and what was the other one? Suburbicon, suburbicon, which did you see either of those? Uh, no, they okay. sounded, <laughs> yeah. suburbicon looked interesting, but I also was like, this feels like it could also be smug. Um, and passengers <clears throat> once I was interested, but then one, once I heard like, for lack of a better term, the twist or the reveal or whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Um, and then you talked about, it, I'm like, I can live without that. Yeah. It, Cause it's basically a movie in which halfway through the, protagonist makes an incredibly selfish disastrous hurtful uncaring mm-hmm. decision but the movie treats it like 
it's part of the rom-com. Like it's yeah. Lloyd Dobler with the fucking boombox <laughs> over his head. Yeah. And it's, uh, and so the whole second half of the movie, I'm like slack jawed. Like how are they not addressing how awful what this guy did is, yeah. um, the movie could be great if they actually do address that. And that's the thing. Yeah. If they do address that. And also in addition to how completely mindlessly wrongheaded, that decision is the movie's not that great. Otherwise it's a sure. pretty by the numbers, uh, uh like it, it has a, uh, uh, what's, I don't know what the, I don't know if screen screenwriting terms, but it has, you know, a big problem. They have to work together to solve. Sure. Uh, at, at the end that feels like a screenplay, you know, invention and it doesn't really, it doesn't really work. Um, has the problem been developing the whole time or is it, in, is it introduced towards the end? Uh, no, the problem, I guess, it's one of those things where in retro, I'm trying to remember because I only saw it the once. Right. The problem is actually introduced right at the beginning, but I don't think we are. It, it's basically the problem because, you know, the premise is that he wakes up when he's supposed to be asleep for 100 yes. years or whatever on this long space journey. So basically it's the the thing that goes wrong that wakes him up. We later realize has m- more uh, implications that could threaten every single sleeping oh, okay. person on the ship. So they have to fix that yeah um anyway it's uh it's real dumb i don't know what they were thinking so uh i'm curious so your 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 worst movie of the decade is not vice well david there's an entire genre of movies that i see and you don't (laughs) all right and my first thought overcomer out on (laughs) blu-ray uh on tuesday odd that you should say that that's not it nor is it an alex kendrick movie i've seen christian films of all different Shapes and sizes. I'm joking. They're all basically the same. Um, <laughs> but the movie God's Not Dead, it had a budget. It had. It looked somewhat professional. Like, they had a crew. They had, like, all of these things that good movies have, that real movies have. Uh, a lot of the other Christian films, they're just starting out. That's not to, That's not to excuse them, but they're just starting out, and so... I can I can forgive certain things. There's no reason to forgive God's Not Dead. Also okay. the f- also the fact that it made so much money. Um so like it was for lack of a better term a major player. I wasn't planning on putting a Christian movie in here but I thought like okay God's Not Dead is big enough um that I'm in, that I'm okay with it because I also think it is horrendously irresponsible it's it's the epitome of everything that i don't like and can't like about christian film i don't like overcomer i don't like the films of alex kendrick but they are sincere and they Mm -hmm. are sincere they like they're they're movies about husbands and fathers he is a husband and father clearly these movies come from a place within him god's not dead is playing on political division it is a calculating film uh that and all it does is just pander. And one of the best ways to pander, especially to a Christian audience, well, any, any audience with an ideology, um, is to tell them that the people that don't have that, that ideology are just plain bad. And then you listen to the writing and, you know, Kevin Sorbo, I don't really enjoy what he has to say in interviews, but he plays his part as best he can and does a, an okay job with it. But when it comes right down to it, the character is just a complete, straw man and be generous to call him two dimensional. Um, but then on top of everything else, there's this very strange structure 
to the story and it's it's kind of an ensemble so we're gonna jump around to different characters which is fine but it gets to this point where like okay i'm gonna I'm, david i'm gonna spoil it for you oh god okay i know uh kevin sorbo's character is a, an atheist and uh but he's kind of been argued into christianity he converts and then gets hit by a car and dies as he as he lay dying um uh-huh. <laughs> uh in the rain this other character, uh, a pastor played by David A.R. White, the head of Pure Flix, um, he he's no, no, this is the situation. It's a it's a literal deathbed uh, conversion. He's laying there and the pastor is there and, and they and he prays and all that. Here's the thing. OK, already very melodramatic, but it's not the end of the world. But this is intercut. Oh, I can't even believe I'm saying this. This is intercut with a Newsboys concert that our main character, who has essentially triumphed in the classroom debate over this professor, he is attending this concert, and the Newsboys are very upbeat and, and all that. So at the same time that we, are sing- that, that we are seeing the professor get hit by a car and die painfully, we are also seeing this joyful, uh, upbeat thing now. I understand in the Christian world, the idea that this guy is now converting and he is on his way to heaven. Okay. I get it, but read the room. Uh, <laughs> anybody who's ever lost someone is going to at least recognize that there is a sadness to the concept of death. Uh, and, and maybe even people that haven't lost anybody. I'd say most people would yeah. acknowledge that. And so it's that. And then, then at this concert, uh, because the character had shown up earlier, Willie Robertson from Duck Dynasty, they have like a, the, the concert has like a screen and they would just like play like, you know, random images while Newsboys is playing. But then Willie Robertson shows up and just with just a white background on the screen. And he's like, and he's talking to the concert goers like those in between songs. Thankfully, at least they knew better than to just have him come in while they're playing. Uh, and he's saying, he's like, he goes, Hey, I heard about, uh, this, this like classroom debate, you know, I heard about this and you know, I want you to say, he goes, I want everyone to get your phone and text. God's not dead to ever all the contacts in your phone. And it's like, okay, clearly that's meant for us at the audience, uh, in the audience. Uh, I saw, I saw the movie with Josh Long and sure enough, uh, by the time the movie got out, both of us had texted God's not dead (laughs) to each other. Um, but it's just like, it's like, look, I realize that Willie Robertson is a Christian, and I realize that the audience for Newsboys is a Christian. Who's to say these things have anything in common beyond that, except that that's who the directors could get? And it's like, it's right. it's so tone deaf. And, and it has just everyone makes, at the concert heard about this classroom debate? I don't, I don't know. Because that reminds me of that Sklar Brothers joke about Karate, like karate <laughs> course, Kid. Yeah. Who hasn't? <laughs> like, uh, I guess you know about the karate tournament yeah. this weekend. Who doesn't? Yeah. Well, they did keep cutting to the concert goers who were like, yeah, come on, we know this already. <laughs> yeah. Come on, old man. Uh, so it's just, it is tone deaf and don't get me wrong. A lot of Christian movies are tone deaf. A lot of movies are tone deaf, but the fact that it had a few million dollars in budget, it had the resources, uh, it had the advertising, it had all of this stuff that could make it possible. Uh, and then it squanders it so, so completely, but also so irresponsibly uh, demonizing the other side in a way that like, it makes you wonder if the writers, well, on one hand you wonder what were they thinking? And you wonder, do they know any non-Christians? 
But honestly, when it comes right down to it, I think they know plenty, but they also realize that a reasonable depiction of people they don't agree with is not going to sell tickets. Mm. That's why I think that this movie, there's, I think there's a cynicism there that really yeah. infuriates me. God's Not Dead, the worst, worst movie of the decade. All right, so next up is Overrated. And I had trouble with the rateds because... Me too, yes. I'm trying to think of... Because what audience are we talking about? Yeah, because th- so this movie that I'm picking is most overrated. I understand that I'm probably preaching to the choir. Among our friends, among the people listening to the show, this probably isn't even a movie that people think about very much. Mm-hmm. I also admit, I said I avoided recency bias. This is not a recent movie, but there are very recent reasons I've been thinking about how much I dislike it recently. Okay. So this is 2013's The Way Way Back is my oh, okay. most overrated movie because it's it's like a little miss sunshine type of like a parody of a sort of sundance friendly indie comedy you mm-hmm. know that feels it's like uh oh it's got some rough edges but it's sweet and emotional and kind of quirky uh <laughs> it, it, yeah i think you're gonna enjoy these characters um it's everything i i don't like about that sort of strain of uh American, uh, you know, pseudo indie filmmaking. Uh, but I, I'll basically just say the reason I've been thinking about it recently is that it's directors, Nat Faxon and Jim Rash, my friend, Jim Rash. Oh, that's from the Patreon. Right. Right. Mind. Um, and a uh, Patreon that hasn't gone up yet, but oh, oh yeah. well, subscribe to the Patreon and you can hear what I'm talking about. Patreon.com slash battleship attention. Anyway, um, Nat, Nat Faxon and Jim Rash are, uh, they might have already wrapped or are currently shooting an American English language remake of force majeure right which is such a great and that didn't end up make, making my list uh, at all but force majeure is a great movie mm-hmm. and remaking i agree it, me remaking it the guys who made the way way back remaking it with do you know who the central couple are it's, is it Kristen wig no i might be thinking of something else i think i'm I, thinking you're of, thinking of the tony erdman remake, one, which i yeah. don't think is happening which i was actually kind of interested in but no it's two people i like it's Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Right. But it yes. feels like with those directors and that cast, I mean, Julia Louis-Dreyfus could do it. But casting Will Ferrell and those directors, it doesn't it, seem like this it, is going to be the it same. It makes it too, uh, too immediately comedic. Comedic, yeah. Which the original doesn't, which we'll be talking about later, by the way. Because <laughs> um, uh, I think it's overrated. No, that's not that. But yeah, uh, that one doesn't reveal itself as comedic. And even when it does, not 100%. Whereas yeah. like, you cast Will Ferrell, there you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. So um, They also wrote The Descendants, which I think is not a bad screenplay. Um, I wouldn't have given it best adapted screenplay that year. But uh, yeah. So it's like, I think they can do it. But I also think that they're a little bit... I love Jim Rash as, a, as an actor, but I think uh, they're a little, little broad. Yeah, yeah. The Descendants is a movie that I was talking about movies. I think about a lot. The sentence is very pointedly a movie that I never, ever think about unless I'm thinking about Robert Forrester going, I'm going to hit you yeah. and then hitting the kid. That's my favorite part of the movie. Jen and I think about it a lot. First off, cause I think Clooney's doing great work in it, but all oh, the whole cast is actually, but the kid that he hits is uh-huh. so similar in every respect to Jen's brother <laughs> that we think about it all the time. That's funny. All right. So what's your uh, most overrated movie of the decade? All right. So as we get to the rateds, yes, it, it has to do. I took different things into consideration for my overrated underrated with overrated. I go with a movie that everybody from my college students 
to people that you and I, you know, fellow uh, online critics, you know, who are hipper than hip, uh, <laughs> that's that, us. that pretty much everybody agrees is just this amazing thing, uh, with only a couple of dissenters being you and me, uh-huh. which is Christopher Nolan's inception. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that was a contender for me. I figured it would be. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, uh, yeah, it, it's a film that again, like overrated doesn't necessarily mean bad. Um, and there's a lot of good in inception from a directorial standpoint, from a writing standpoint, it's 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 a huge argument as to why not every director can write mm. uh, as well. Um, I think it's fairly it's it has one really good idea. Well, I mean, obviously, from the the, the concept is neat, but thematically, the one really good idea that I like is this idea that this memory of his wife is literally destructive. Um, that she works her way in and she is this poisonous Mm -hmm. element. Um, I really like the idea of that. I wish they had gone further with it, but that is what I say. That is what we both say about most of the stuff in the film, which is weird given how big and epic the movie is. I wish it would, I wish it had gone further. I feel like compared with movies like eternal sunshine, or I'd say something like Eraserhead or Mulholland drive movies that understand dream logic and that there's no logic at all, but it makes perfect sense in the moment. Whereas the dream logic in inception, there's, it's, it's actually not a very virtuosic film. It's a, it's pretty cold and clinical, which is the last way I, the last words I would use to describe a dream. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so I just feel like the one that the, 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 it can be wrapped up in the thing that you reference, which is Tom Hardy saying like, uh, I forget who is it, Somebody pulls out a gun and he says, you must, this is your observation, not mine. Well, I've repeated it, uh, but I think it started with you because I don't think I remember the line. How could I? Um, but Tom Hardy says, you must remember to dream a a little larger. And all he does is pull out a a bigger gun. And it's like, and imagine (laughs) if he, if there were simply a tank there immediately, that's how dreams work. Yeah. Or if he could like pull a, like Dr. Manhattan and just make the other guns dissolve. Well, he can yeah. do whatever he wants. Yeah. It's a dream. You know, like I took a nap before we started recording uh-huh. and I had a dream that Jen had been kidnapped. Oh man. Uh, and that I was, I needed to go in and find what had happened. But, uh, there were two apes with AK 47s, uh, guarding the entrance. And so I went to a nearby neighbor and I said, Hey, all, as I, as I was telling a funny story, it's like, so my wife's been kidnapped and they got these apes here. <laughs> like, there was no urgency in that moment. Like the minute I came up against an obstacle, it was more just an inconvenience, but I still wasn't going to do it. Like it makes no sense. It's ridiculous. It's comedic. It's absurd. And there's nothing, there's no quality of that at all there. I feel like there should have been moments in inception where the character, where silly things happen and the characters are like, wait, what? And they're like trying to figure it out. But there's none of that because I just as talented, as extremely talented as Christopher Nolan is, he's very serious. And at times I'd say he's very Mm -hmm. self-serious. And Inception, I don't think should have been that. So I do think that it is the most overrated movie of (laughs) the decade. I like how we're doing this. Yeah. Uh, Underrated movie of the decade. This is another one that I had some contenders. I really strongly wanted to go back when this came out. I was a big one of the few defending voices of Snow White and the Huntsman. Mm. And I really, I, I wanted to put that on there because I still, it was in contention for me as well. I still love it. 
uh, I still think it's a darkly beautiful movie. I love what Charlize Theron is, mm-hmm. is doing, uh, in the movie. Um, uh, I found it legitimately scary at some, at, mm-hmm. at points, uh, which I didn't expect going into it, but that's not that, the movie. That mirror creature gets me. Yeah. Yeah. No, the one that I picked is the, uh, why am I suddenly drawing a blank on the director's name? Anyway, it's the Tim Heidecker vehicle, the comedy. Oh, all right. As the most underrated because, and I almost feel like maybe I should have picked Snow White and the Huntsman because part of the nature of this movie is to be antagonistic. It's a movie that, and it's, it's a movie that wants you to hate it in some ways because it's about a character who, uh, has his own self-loathing and wants to be hated. Um, but also has too much of a, an ego to do anything about Mm it. Um, so it, it feels like kind of a cheat putting this on because people are in a way, uh, Rick Alverson is his name. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> uh, in a way people were just reacting the way that most people would to a movie. That's this, um, relentlessly unpleasant, a character who's this much of an uncaring jerk bag. Uh, Which one do you think is more unpleasant that or entertainment? Um, I think they're, uh, Hmm. I think entertainment's a better movie, but I like them both. I think the comedy is more unpleasant because the character is, okay. uh, is trying to be awful most of the time. You know, um, he has a whole, he like, uh, he has a whole monologue. This it's like so awful that it feels bad. That I feel bad saying it. Did you see the comedy? No, he has a whole monologue where he, which he, cause he, his character is very rich mm-hmm. or he comes from a very rich family and he goes back to his family very often, but he's at his, his father's mansion essentially. And he takes on this character of the plantation owner and he has this monologue about making lampshades from the skins of slaves. Oh. Right. But he's like a, it's like a bit he's doing, Yeah, but the, like, it's not really funny. He's trying to be awful. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of stuff is really unpleasant. Mm. Um, and yet I think the movie does a better job of, 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 uh, satirizing people uh, a very uh, such a specific you ever you ever seen a satire so specific that you didn't realize the thing that it was satiring existed until you t- saw the satire like, i remember uh, you and i uh you showed me uh titus welliver doing a robert duvall impression yes and it's like it sort of dawned on you the takes that robert duvall has that you hadn't even thought about yes and so um whereas something like Inger goes west which i think is a movie that i was too hard on um at, at the time uh you know this sort of like uh, West Coast bourgeois boho chic Coachella going, you, you know, um, uh, organic food bullshit, whatever. Yeah. Uh, organic food's fine. Anyway, you know this type, and it's like, yes, England's yeah. West got him. Whereas the comedy is like, uh, you don't necessarily know this type of sort of East Coast. Uh, ironic to the point of not even being present, uh, trust fund hipster types. Yeah. Um, and yet it's also, uh, what I remember uh, thinking at the time is that the comedy is in, in another way, it's kind of a, it's kind of a comment on a character like Venkman from Ghostbusters. Sure. Who's, who's never ever serious. Yeah. And we're watching the movie. It's like, Oh, this guy's funny. If you knew him, you'd be like, just give me a real moment. Yeah. You know, Peter, 
Yeah. The city's about to be destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Please. I need someone to process this with. Um, and so I, I think the, the comedy is a really smart, it's like it, Rick Everson having the idea to satirize the type of person that most of us never would have been able to pinpoint and maybe even don't know personally mm-hmm. and getting it so right, uh, uh, so right that it's, like I said, thoroughly unpleasant to watch most of the time. Yeah. Uh, definitely underrated. All right. Um, so here we go with another, uh, preface here, but, um, so, the movie that I'm going to mention as being underrated is a film that was nominated for Oscars. Uh, a lot of critics really liked it, but this is one where I'm getting more specific to our circles. Okay. Um, because, and I'll, and I'll talk about some finalists here. This is something I've said on the show before. Um, you know, there are people that will bash the revenant. This is a finalist. Uh, they'll bash the revenant, or a movie like Birdman, which are like, you know, Best Picture 2014 in the running for 2015. They'll bash them and they'll You're talk talking about me now because I don't like either of those movies. Well, and that's the thing. And, and there, are, there are other examples as well. They bash the movies as dumb and, and just, they're so dismissive. And while neither of them were my favorite movie of that year, I still want, I still want to like acknowledge the, that there, there is achievement within there. Um, in both films, whether it be an acting achievement or a cinematography achievement, whatever it is. And so it's just like when there's this much effort and love put into something and it's not just a calculation. Um, and yeah, there's a self importance to burden, uh, probably a self importance to both. Um, uh, it's just something that I can't necessarily, uh, dismiss. Um, so a lot of, a lot of critics within our circles, within our group, have been very have over the years been pretty dismissive of Black Swan, uh, oh. directed by Darren Aronofsky. Which I didn't see, so I can't. It was my favorite movie of that year. It is a movie that thinks in in broad strokes, uh, and is and is kind of obvious in some ways. But it does what a movie like Inception doesn't, which is it delves into a character who feels like she is unraveling and it visualizes that and it allows the, the actress to go places that many people would consider to be over the top. And, and he just doesn't look back. There's something like, even when, when Aronofsky makes a movie that I don't really like that much, like mother, there's an audacity to the way he makes movies that I really appreciate. And black Swan, I think did a really great job of, of exploring mental illness or the concept of a mental breakdown or an identity crisis. It takes that and it says, yes, that's going to be histrionic sometimes. We're go- and, it, and other times it's going to be extremely quiet and lonely. We're going to show all of it. And the script again is often quite broad, specifically in its dialogue, but the filmmaking is so on point and a willingness to just engage difficult material um, on its own terms, as opposed to something like, uh, like inception, which came out the same year. Um, and again, like the, the, the Academy nominated for best picture director, she won actress, uh, and it was, and it was pretty well received at the time, but the way I've heard a lot of people talk about it since then, um, and even some of my friends at the time, uh, they, they just talked about the ridiculousness of it. And and my, my response is like, yeah, yes, it is ridiculous. 
when you're in the thick of mental illness, or if you're on the outside looking in, you would think like what I was talking about with my weird, uh, gun toting ape dreams. Um, (laughs) the, uh, it's ridiculous when you're in a certain mindset, but when you're right there in it, it's the most, it's Mm -hmm. the most serious, uh, dire thing in the world. And I think he does a really great job of just letting that permeate the entire making of the film. Um, and so, yeah, I, again, within our circles, I would say it's the most underrated movie of the decade. Okay. Um, I'm, I don't think there's a Darren Aronofsky movie that I like. Um, I've skipped some big ones, right? Never saw pie or the fountain or black swan. I didn't see the I, fountain and I've heard I would like it. I liked Requiem for a Dream when it came out, but mm-hmm. I was a much younger, less sophisticated viewer yeah. then. I don't think I would like it now. Yeah, um, yeah I don't. You think saw I'd Mother, like right? Yeah, I, uh, it's like I'm, uh, th- I think what I said at the time is I'm really glad that he that Paramount gave him the money to make that. <laughs> yeah, movie. I'm really I, <laughs> that's I, for I, sure. That's good for them. I'd be um, curious to know what you think of what you thought of Noah if you ever saw Noah. Um, because I really responded to it. I think. Oh wait, I did. Wait, I did see. No, I didn't. Oh, I didn't okay. think much of it either way. I, I didn't yeah. hate it. I thought a lot about the clothing they were wearing. Hmm. Uh, I remember talking about this on the movie journal. I think at the time, or mm-hmm. or something at the time, about how like they're wearing like tailored clothing. Like, right. It's supposed to be some version of like BC, like a long, 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 long time ago. I don't think yeah. people were doing like you know shoulders and like divots and sleeves. I don't think people were making tailored clothing. Yeah. It's like you're watching uh, Robin hood, Prince of thieves or something like (laughs) that. Um, Yeah. It's, that's the thing is I, I think Aronofsky is actually a pretty flawed filmmaker and I'd say he's, he's definitely a flawed writer, but there is, there's just a quality to him that even when I don't, like I said, even when I don't like his movies, I I'm glad he made them the way that he did. Oddly enough. So, okay. All right. Now we're into honorable mentions, which yes. I think now uh, we do, we each do five. We don't go back and forth to do five right. at a time. I'll say a couple words unless you say, we'll talk about that later, which yes. I think might, might happen with one of these. The first one, actually, I'm really excited because looking at our honorable mentions or our top 10 tops, 10, um, I don't know if that like year to year, there's always going to be overlap, but like when it's a decade, yeah, I don't know. I don't have, know if there will be any, overlap. we might not have any overlap. Okay. So here uh, we go. So I'm going to go through my five. Um, the, the weirdly, one of the first movies I thought of when I was like, Oh, that has to be on the list. And then ended up getting pushed out of mention mm-hmm. is the tree of life. Oh, okay. Uh, is that, that's not on your we list. We will talk about it later. We'll talk about it. That's what yeah. I wanted to know. Okay. So I won't talk about that. Uh, next up is a movie that, uh, one of the rare movies on this list that I have revisited because it's, uh, a f- fun, easy watch. And that's Sean Baker's tangerine okay. from 2015, which I think is another movie that's, uh, very specific and also very humanistic. Um, I also have, um, a certain affection for it because of, it was shot in a, part of Hollywood that was at the time that it was shot there was going away. And now four years later, pretty much has gone away. Mm-hmm. The donut shop, the uh, donut time, which, which had been on that corner, uh, you know, it's not just it's the entire tr- time. It's that the Trejo. I, it's the uh, Trejo yeah. donuts now, but, uh, that not just the entire time I lived in Los Angeles, but going back to like, I asked my, my wife who grew up in Ventura County, like when, when t- she is, she and her friends as teenagers, when they had cars and they'd come into Hollywood, like, Donut Time mm-hmm. was there. It was always there, and now Donut Time's gone. And so uh, I think of Tangerine as one of the 
so it's an honorable mention, but I think it, it, it is one of the best, if not the best Los Angeles movie uh, of, of the decade. Although we'll have another one uh, coming up in a little bit. Um, another one from just last year. Actually, my next three are all 2018 movies. Oh, okay. Um, so one from just last year made my top 10 list uh, is Andrew Bujalski's Support the Girls. Okay. Um, which, again, did you see it? No, you'd like it a lot. I know, uh, I know. Um, With that cast, especially. Yeah, it, it's a. Uh, it, it is on the one hand, it is a very warm and kind of light and fun like workplace comedy, mm-hmm. and yet it also, like the best movies, is so specific a reflection of its time and of the conversation we're having uh, about about women's place in the world, about people of color's place in the world, about you know the. Uh, inequality between the haves and the have nots, the workers and the owners. And, you know, uh, all that stuff is going on under the movie that is on the surface, just a super fun movie to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also has Haley Lou Richardson in it, which I think is, uh, we're yeah. not doing like actors and actresses of the decade, but right. Haley Lou Richardson is one of my favorite uh, actors to have come out uh, of this, of this decade. I think I'm most, I think I'm, maybe solely familiar with her as a function of Columbus, but she's great, but she's great in it. Yeah. Um, did you not see, uh, Oh, what was the one? It was the two Haley Steinfeld is in it. What the hell? Edge of 17. Edge of 17. I didn't see it again. You'd really like that one. I know there's a lot of stuff I would like, but, uh, you know, I'm busy, uh, watching Disney plus, uh, next up, (laughs) um, uh, next up and i've got uh i've got a, a a few longer movies on my list this is one of the longest this okay. is the second longest movie on my list okay and it was my number one movie of 2018 and that's patrick wing's a bread factory oh yes okay uh which is a movie that uh again like support the girls but in a very different way from this from support the girls is about a whole bunch of things at once um but patrick wing is more i think direct but also unlike something like a vice or 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 what i think of the worst of the um uh in uh sure. movies he's not he's not overly he's not smug mm-hmm. he, uh he's not self-serious to use your word yeah. about christopher nolan he's he's having an, a conversation and making statements about the uh the the place that art holds and should hold Mm -hmm. in 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 society and also the idea of not just in the arts but in general the idea of independent businesses versus corporations um and that sort of and that sort of thing um but also in a just a uh, uh, an often very funny, sometimes fantastical. There are mm-hmm. musical sequences in the middle of nowhere uh, in this movie. Um, look at a, a town as a, as a, as a microcosm. And, and it, it, the movie is, it's four hours long. Uh, it has lots of, lots of characters and each one of them feels like someone that Patrick Wing loves, even mm-hmm. when they represent the, the other side. Yeah. Uh, okay. I can't go on too long because next up, this is the closest I got to a 2019 movie because this is a 2018 movie that was released in the U S in 2019. This is my long, the longest movie by a long shot oh, on oh, my list. Yeah, okay. And it's LaFleur. Okay. The, the, uh, uh, people say 15 hour movie. Here's the thing. Now again, David, this is the best movies, not the most movies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a movie that is okay. Yeah. People say 15 hours. My 
digital screener did run 15 hours, but that's like 13 and a half hours of actual program mm-hmm. and then six 15 minute intermissions. Oh, so it's really okay. 13 and a half hours plus the end credits are 40 minutes long and yes, they take place over picture, but really wow. if you don't want to watch the end credits, 12 hours and 50 minutes. Come on. Did they have like original composition during the intermissions? Like, no, it just goes black. Okay. Um, yeah, that's so, nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, don't get scared by the 15 minute thing. You could watch this thing in under 13 hours. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, La Flora is a movie that's actually six movies, uh, in one of wildly varying lengths. The shortest one is under half an hour. The longest one is I think about six hours long. Um, only that short, that short one, mm. the the thirty minute one, has a beginning, middle, and end. The first four movies uh, have beginnings and middles, but no ends. Then you've got the the, the short film um, that is a, an entire story, and then you've got the last thing, which is just the end of a of a story mm-hmm. uh, that you don't see the beginning of. Um, they don't like. I, I think I was expecting maybe something where they would like tie together like a three colors type thing like mm-hmm. oh characters will pop up but no you've got the same f- core four actresses who who star in in each of them except for the the 30 minute one which is an anomaly it's a mm-hmm. 30 minute like silent movie that has none of the, uh, the cast from the other five movies in it um so they're the, the same core four actresses are in the other uh the the other four but i feel like the the length is necessary not only necessary it's fun because that's the thing the movie for as much as it sounds like this big like heady conceptual thing and is the movie's a lot of fun a lot of the time most of the most of the the genres because each movie is a a different sort of genre are like kind of pulpy like the first Mm -hmm. one's a a horror story about a haunted mummy and the one that's six hours long is like an espionage spy like thriller um uh you've got the one that's kind of a musical it's like a melodrama romance kind of musical um uh and the reason i think it's so long is that i feel like it's an argument for something that you and i have been talking about we actually did an episode on this subject years and years ago back at your old apartment on mm. uh on whitset whitset yeah um uh about the idea of we tend to treat move like cinema as a storytelling medium as a default, but really it does other things. Yes. And that's like storytelling is actually just one of the tools. It's not even the most important thing it does. And so I feel like the director here, whose name I'm forgetting, um, uh, basically he's in a way, in a very counterintuitive way, he's taking very plot driven genres Hmm. and then intentionally not giving you a full plot and forcing you to consider like, Oh, I'm just enjoying this moment to moment without, I don't need it to be resolved. I don't need to know how it started to just enjoy it moment to moment. And so it's an art. I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a movie that has a whole bunch of story going on. And yet it is ultimately an argument that story isn't really what we enjoy the most about movies. Yeah. Um, that's something that, uh, as I've matured in my, movie love um i've come to i love a good script and i love a good story um and film might be hmm it might be the most effective medium in conveying story but that doesn't necessarily mean that's Mm -hmm. all that it is Um, Uh, and and if you if you actually look at my top 10 
for the decade this year versus 10 years ago, you will see how much oh, yeah. uh, my I tastes have changed. So last thing I want to say, his name is Mariano Yinis. Uh, the other thing, I, I one of my favorite sayings that I, that I invoke a lot on this podcast because I think about it a lot, and I can't remember who first said it, but the idea that every every film is a documentary of its own making. Mm. And this movie took the, took him but the better part of a decade to make. And, you know, he's got the same four women uh, in the movie. Uh, and I do feel like part of it is part of the movie, part of the story of the movie over the course of these six stories is him kind of falling in love with these women in a way. Oh, all right. And I would say that I, as a viewer, had a similar experience, hmm. like seeing them in different roles. I came to like, really feel a lot of affection for the actress as opposed to just the character like Deborah Carr and life and death of Colonel Blimp. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's your, that's your five honorable that's mentions. Honorable mention. Okay. Yeah. Um, here are my five. Uh, I don't, I can't imagine any of these being on your top 10, but I might be wrong. I don't know. Okay. So the first is Paul Thomas Anderson's the master. Okay, I had to wait till the last two words to find out if uh, that was <laughs> okay. on my list or not. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's just a, a marvelous film. The Ma- I've always had, even though it was my favorite movie that year, I've always had a hard time talking about The Master because it's so intangible mm-hmm. while seeming so uh, comprehensible. Um, because, and in, in fact, just today on facebook uh in one of the groups that i'm a part of people were talking about walking phoenix which then led to them talking about the master and saying that like oh the the movie's too talky it's not a, it's not visual enough you know and in my mind i'm like i guess i can see how someone might think that it certainly is talky but that doesn't mean it's not visual and also to me it's like there's a difference between talky and exposition. There's a difference between talky and story driven. Um, cause these characters tend to talk around things a lot. Uh, and then, yeah, we, it's, I remember also at the time people were talking about like 70 millimeter, like why would you shoot this movie this way? It's just, it's a lot of close ups. And it's like, because I think Paul Thomas Anderson finds just as much beauty in the human face as he does yeah. like these big land, these big landscapes as the characters driving the motorcycle, uh, riding the motorcycle and all that. Um, I think he sees a really emotionally epic story within on one hand, the creation of this new religion, this new way of thinking, but also about this very intimate friendship between these two guys who need each other in one way. But the minute that they, the minute they need them to accomplish a certain thing, but once they accomplish that, they don't need each other anymore. So there's a sense of heartbreak. There's like a, a almost a breakup scene, uh, and just and also just beautifully acted. Um, I think I said I said this when I when I talked about Joker that I there's a, mo- a lot of the movie that I don't like, but I came away thinking like thank God for Joaquin Phoenix uh, that that we have people actors that are as committed to their roles as he is. And in this one, you've got him, Amy Adams and Philip Seymour Hoffman, not to, to say nothing of the, the, the rest of the cast, but like you've got these three performers who are not interested. If you like, they don't care if you like them, they care only about conveying very idiosyncratic characters. And, uh, yeah, I, I adore it. Okay. Next up for me is Martin Scorsese's silence. Mm. Um, great movie. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty marvelous and i've been uh, thinking about it a lot lately specifically because i've been thinking 
I like the Irishman a lot, but it's no silence. It's no silence. Uh, <laughs> and and honestly, you can kind of tell that, like, yeah, I, I believe that Scorsese had been wanting to make this movie for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad that it took him as long as it did, because I think it's a film that when made by an older man, as opposed to like if he had made it 30 years ago, I'm sure it still would have been amazing, but probably would have had a different, a slightly different tone mm-hmm. to it. Um, yeah, it's a film that is extremely patient and insanely humanistic willing to embrace its characters flaws and foibles and in some cases their evil actions Mm -hmm. uh, and see it all as part of like this larger human tapestry Um, when I talk about my favorite movie Nashville I one of the things that I say is I feel like this looking at this movie this must be how God thinks of people Mm -hmm. Um, he sees all of them and he and he finds something to love even even when a character is doing something terrible, there's there's a tragic quality to that. It's like, oh, you're so much better than this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like Silence is a film that is willing to give every character their chance, uh, including our our oppressor characters. And and the the I don't remember the name of the actor, but like the the lead oppressor, yeah, he's great. Is also just so charismatic. Yeah. He's he's entertaining even in the midst of horrible things. And so uh, it's uh, it's. It's not when you think of of Scorsese, uh, I tend to think of a, a director who's just extremely energetic, you know, Goodfellas and that sort of thing. And I would I would argue that the tone of the Irishman is probably infused with a little bit of silence. The fact that he made oh, the yeah. Irishman after silence, I think, is is notable. Yeah. Um, all right. Next up for me is Robert Eggers, The Witch, which I still haven't seen. And I think you would. I think you would love it. I think I was well, going to say. I was going to say House, so, uh, which I still haven't seen. Uh, I was about to say. I think most people would like it. No, they wouldn't. Why did I? Why did I? Most even people think listening to this podcast would probably. Like That's it. probably true. Yeah. Um, as far as just a complete, and I'm sure the lighthouse is the same way. It is just a completely realized world. Now, granted, in the witch, it's mostly it's it's centralized to this little cabin this little farm in the middle of the woods and yet uh you still feel a hundred percent that you are in a different place a different time um it's not in black and white but it is shot in this monochromatic way uh that really one could say is drab except it's also incredibly beautiful and menacing and all of these things that a movie that a, that a horror movie needs to be it feels it's structured like a fable the performances are amazing all the way through, but that language, um, you know, as much as I may talk about like, ah, Hey, you know, Darren Aronofsky, his scripts aren't, aren't perfect. When you get a script, especially with dialogue that is just so consistent and so beautifully realized, not unlike when you, when we would watch Deadwood and you listen to that dialogue and you're like, this is the, how did anyone think of this outside of the time? And I think even then they might say it's a little flowery. Um, and the 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 old time dialogue in in the witch it's like watching shakespeare you have to you really need to look at what the characters are doing and what the actors are doing to kind of get a sense of what it is they're saying at at some points uh and yet throughout there's there's a real sense of of despair but there are moments of hope uh, hopefulness and it's it just like it's this film that just burst onto the scene no one could have predicted it and based on what i've heard and seen with the lighthouse it just sounds like robert eggers is just going to do what he wants to do and what he wants to do is just tell these 
otherworldly surreal tales of people whose situations are so different than ours in the modern world and yet at their core so similar all right number 12 for me is david fincher's the social network oh yeah that's a good movie all right (laughs) yes i agree it didn't make my list um yeah uh i mean could be argued that it was it was 2010 like it kicked the decade off right uh it's a film that i have returned to many times and it's just all of these wonderful things working together you have and this is something we've talked about before you have aaron sorkin can be kind of high-minded in his prose and then david fincher can be cold and clinical in his in the way he directs and you have these two things bringing out the best in each other and one anchors the other and the other uh, so the the direction anchors the screenwriting the screenwriting uh lifts up the directing and then in the midst of it you also have a, a wonderfully edited film with with really propulsive invigorating music um that that really it feels like the music of discovery like when something is coming together you're like yeah wait no wait no this is amazing yeah. uh and so it's but but it can just as easily turn and have a, a tragic cynical feel to it uh, i think the performances are all just marvelous and 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 so much of the weight is on jesse eisenberg who thankfully doesn't try to over explain his character and his performance he just is that character like him or not and a lot of it comes down to he can be very charming. He can be delightfully idiosyncratic. He can also be tremendously selfish. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot to say about it and we've had 10 years to say it. So I'm not saying anything anyone else hasn't, but it's a, it's a film that just hangs together so completely. Yeah. It's weird to think that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross were like new to doing film scores because they've become, I think some of the notable film composers of this decade and i think they've informed uh i think their score for this and then uh girl with the dragon tattoo and gone girl like i think they have actually informed a lot of what where film score is now like if you want a film score to sound more modern you either go like cliff martinez or uh, uh trent reznor and atticus ross both of which kind of have a similar feel yeah, to yeah. them uh, and are um, more more atmospheric than than specific. Did Cliff Martinez do the music for the Nick that that series? I don't actually know because I listened. I never. I never. I watched the first episode. And that's it. But I have on Spotify. I've listened to that score a lot. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is um, uh, it's two honorable mentions on, of yours that have Andrew Garfield in them. Well, get ready because he's in like <laughs> he's in like eight of these. Both of his Spider-Man movies are in my top ten, um, and they're just so different that I didn't want to I didn't want to combine them and have now, them take uh, up one slot. Lions for Lambs was, was the last decade. <laughs> That's right, and and bo- and when I saw it, I was like, it's going to be a good decade, the 2010s. <laughs> we saw that together. We did. Yeah. Um, back when we saw movies together. That's true. Um, okay. What was the last movie you and I saw together? Oh my gosh. That wasn't a screening that we both happened to attend. Even if it was a screening, like, because there are also screenings you and I have both been to, but not sat next to each other. Oh, well, that's usually the case. Yeah. So uh, th- something together, uh, I don't even remember. The Avengers 2012? Is that the last time you and I sat? Did we sit together? Yeah. Okay. All right. Because when we saw Nebraska, we went to Nebraska, I was there with Jen. I think you were there with Nat. Because I think back, this is like inside baseball, back in 2012, I don't think you were getting invites as more than one lesson yet so i think you were my plus one for the that's event. right because yeah. we wanted to this was my idea to basically 
elbow Natalie out of the picture. Uh, so Which that she didn't care about. I know, but uh, <laughs> it, I felt really bad about it. But it ultimately came down to like I had seen all the movies leading up to it, you hadn't, and so we gave two different takes on yeah. on the film because entertaining the Avengers as its own movie yeah. as opposed to part of a series. Well, obviously, let's not talk too much about the Avengers because yeah, I'm yeah. sure it's uh, our number, both of our number one. Okay, so mine. Uh, here we go. My number eleven is a film that we've talked about before. It's a movie that I I didn't dislike it at the time, but it caused me a great deal of distress. But in the world of pure filmmaking oh. and not narrative being narratively driven, this is exciting. Uh, I never know how you say his name, Leos Carrix. I don't know. Holy Motors. Yeah, good. Uh, a film that I have since revisited a film that I bought. It's currently loaned out to someone and I don't know why, cause I don't think they'd like it. Um, I don't know why I push movies on people like that, but, uh, it's, <laughs> it's just such a, such a beautifully realized mystery and one that is hilarious and yet so touching. It's inspiring and scary. It's all of these things. It's like what it's sort of like what you're talking about with Lafleur. Lafleur, like you've got all these little vignettes, and you have this one actor. Lafleur. Lafleur. What Spanish, did I say? Spanish, not French. Oh, you said Lafleur. Oh yes, yes. Which is French for the flower. Right. This is Spanish for the flower. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say the flower. What do you think of that? <laughs> That's fine. Um, but uh, but yeah, you've got this one actor. And he's an actor in the movie as well, and he's carrying all these genres. And so I feel like the the film itself is just a commentary on what it takes to be an artist and just being so adaptable while also being true to yourself. And yet at the end uh, of the film, there's also just such inherent ridiculousness. It's, it's a film that is so celebratory of movies and what movies can be and not in the way I, I also am a big fan. I tend to like that type of thing. I was a big fan of the Coen brothers, hail Caesar. Uh, a mm, lot of people yeah. weren't, but to I me, like I really enjoyed it. Just any film that's like, that, that almost feels like a little kid being like, can you fucking believe we get to do this? <laughs> and so, you know what? I'm going to do all of it in one film. And that's how it feels to me. And I just, I just love it. So now it's time to do it. It's time to actually get into, We're into our, our top 10. Top 10. I will start. My number 10 is a movie uh, like The Tree of Life, which ended up in the hour mentions. It was one of the few movies um, that I knew had to be on the list. It's one of the, as I said before, five movies in my top 10 that are 2016 movies. Uh, and it's also, for stupid reasons, it's a divisive movie. Okay. That's... Damien Chazelle's La La Land. All right. My favorite movie of 2016 at the time, at the time we recorded the podcast mm-hmm. um, of top 10 of 2016. It's no longer my favorite movie. As you can tell, there are at least four 2016 movies that are yeah. higher than it. But um, I talked about how many of these movies I haven't revisited. I've seen La La Land at least four times. Oh, wow. Um, and that's not including all of the times that I've listened to the soundtrack uh, in in the car. Um, it, it, it's... As far as just pure love of movie magic, it's uh, it, it it has no other contenders in the decade for me. Um, it's it's transportive and misty eyed and romantic and all of these things, um, and yet without ever without ever reducing or taking away from any of those things. When I say reducing or taking away, those are the same things. I'm being repetitive. Um, anyway, without, without taking away from any of those things, it is also 
uh, subverting them ultimately mm. because it is ultimately a movie that uh, is a love letter to things like architecture and old movie houses and of course jazz yeah that is also constantly having people remind Ryan Gosling's character that being a purist and a traditionalist is more likely to kill things than to save them. Yeah. So it, like, it, uh, um, um, what, what does he say? They, uh, um, in Los Angeles, they worship everything and value. Nothing is, is a line that he says, which is another one of the great, this is, this is an underrated Los Angeles, Los Angeles movie too. Um, and at the time I, I really wish that I had, I wanted to write a, like an editorial about this. Um, because you still could. Yeah, I guess, uh, because it is superficially a Los Angeles movie. And then it's like, where you know, let's walk along that. And I can't remember that. I mean that, that, that Pasadena bridge and right. let's take the angels flight. And it's like a tourist yeah. Los Angeles movie, but it is also below that as a movie about, um, Los Angeles and the type of people that it draws to itself and often expels or crushes yeah. or doesn't or, or asks some great toll of. And that's the other thing about it is it's a love story. And then I went back and listened to the movie journal um, uh, when I first saw it and I realized that like, oh, I couldn't talk about the ending. It was still too new. Right. So now I guess if you haven't seen Lala and I'm going to spoil the end, you've had your time. Um, it is also a love story where the two people don't end up together. Yeah. Very pointedly don't end up together because like every character in a Damien Chazelle movie, they choose their, their passion, their calling, their vocation over their relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. The difference is, uh, as opposed to something, someone like the kid from whiplash or, uh, or Neil Armstrong, um, underrated first man, by the way, underrated movie. Um, I still haven't seen it, that. It one. doesn't, like they're not alone. So it's not like the world being like, let us in like, right. They're like two kindred souls. They're so kindred. Yeah. They're so perfectly matched that they are the only two people who realize that they can't be together because they're more interested in, uh, pursuing their careers. And, and yet it doesn't mean this is the thing that, that honestly makes me want to cry. When I revisit the movie, I do cry every time I watch the movie. Mm -hmm. When I just talking about this, the idea that, just because a relationship, romantic relationship, even a friendship, just because it ends doesn't mean it was a failure. Everything that happens to you on the way to your goal is a part of reaching that goal. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I find that it's just think about like, I, I, you know, I've been in a number of long-term relationships before I met my wife. And like when those would end at first, I'd be like, uh, either I'd be, sad that I got my heart broken or whatever, mm-hmm. or I'd be like, glad I'm out of that. That was yeah. a nightmare. And now like time has passed. Like all I, all I think about is like, Oh, I wonder how they're like, that's, that was a nice time. You know, yeah. we had some memories together and like, uh, I am the person I am. I'm the person that fell in love with and met my wife because of my experiences with other people. Um, and, and so well, and is, Again, like I said, it's a love story about two people who don't end up together, and yet it's not tragic. It's yeah. beautiful, and I find that so... A uh, thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. Yeah, wait, what is that from? Vision says that <laughs> in Avengers Age of Ultron. Oh, which is a good movie. But it is a good movie. Uh, yeah, you and I are uh, in the minority on that. 
I, but everyone else is wrong. But that is a that that is a patented uh, certified battleship pretension take because yeah. UI and Scott are all yeah. defenders of Age of Ultron. Yeah, um, it is funny that yeah, I can't think of a more uh, a bigger testament to this to like what the MCU did than the fact that I don't have any MCU movies in my top ten. I'm going to assume neither do you, no. and yet. We are mentioning it pretty regularly. <laughs> yeah, we still keep finding ways to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, because I, yeah, because uh, obviously Star Lord was in my worst movie of. Right, yeah. Of, of the year. Um, and I'm sure plenty of MCU actors have shown up in other stuff. Yeah, Our, I mean, Chris Evans was played a surprisingly large role in uh, God's Not Dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Dean Kane is in it. He played Superman once. Um, okay. So, uh, are we moving on? Yeah. What's, excuse me. What is your number 10? My number 10 is a film from 2013. Uh, it is, I'm always a little bit iffy about the pronunciation of the, of the director's name, Derek Cianfrance's the place beyond the pines, a film that is, and I know that's uh, like a, According to the likes of you, it might be a 2012 film, but it was released here in 2013. Sure, okay. Um, no, when you're thinking in terms of the of the of the decade, then it was made between these two t- uh, in this in this 10 year span. Uh, yeah, it's it is such a strange. It's an oddly ambitious film. A lot of the movies in my top 10 are are ambitious in in more stylistic ways. This is ambitious in its narrative. Uh, and it's a film that I, this is actually going to be a common theme as well amongst the movies in my top 10. I have a hard time talking about exactly why it works for me. I don't necessarily think it's a perfect film, but there's something so beautiful about the way that the movie explores what came before in our lives, like in previous generations in our family, but also in our own experiences and how that shapes who we are now and how much we can let that dictate what we do or not. Um, whether as a function of that worked well before, so I'm going to keep doing it, or I really regret that that happened. So I'm going to do everything I can to run from it. Um, or someone hurt me. So now I need to hurt them back. Like it incorporates all of these Mm -hmm. elements. Um, and just this idea of the stuff that you, the, the stuff that you choose to carry with you and, and I can't, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm already starting to repeat myself, but it's along with being, I think a beautifully written film. I think the acting is great all the way through. Um, it's, I mean, Bradley Cooper was well established at this point, but it's a film that I think, uh, really showed off his talents as you see him as a young and pretty immature and naive cop to mm-hmm. uh, a slick uh, mover and shaker who still has the capacity for humanity but uh, ignores it a lot of the time. Uh, it's the the ca- yeah the cast all around. Ben Mendelsohn plays a, an important role and I and I love the way he plays it as well. But also just the the film without ever actually being this, it has an almost dreamlike quality to the way it's cut together, the use of music, um, and the very, in many cases, the very patient camera work. And 
I can't, I can't, I can't quite put my finger on why this movie has stayed with me. I used the word earlier, haunted, that uh, Parasite haunted me. A lot of the movies in this, in my top 10, have haunted me, and Place Beyond the Pines is one of them. It's a film that I've, I've seen a few times now, and every time I feel like it just envelops me and pulls me into this world that is not, it's not a crazy world. It's not uh, Holy Motors or anything mm-hmm. like this. This is the world that we live in, um, but it, it makes you realize that every individual person kind of lives in their own world. And for, you know, two plus hours, you are in these characters worlds and you're seeing what drives them, whether they mean for it to or not. And, uh, I, I just adore it. I remember being so surprised by how much I loved it because basically I never saw blue Valentine. So I didn't know what to expect right. from Derek Sion in France. I didn't like drive. And in the, and I was just like, uh, I remember thinking like, Oh, what Ryan Gosling's got a new jacket now <laughs> because that is like, he's got yeah. like that, like jean jacket, right? Yeah. Um, is it a jean jacket that he wears in place Beyond the pines? Anyway, there's a, there's a jacket. It doesn't um, have a scorpion on the back of it, no. but yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, I was really blown away, blown away by it. Um, uh, uh, as well. And also, Going back to uh, underrated, I had I had a really hard time not doing picking like underseen, under talked yeah. about movies. Yeah. But speaking of Derek C. on Friends, the light the light between oceans is a movie mm-hmm. that really just did not get the attention that it that it deserved. Uh, really good movie. Uh, speaking of overrated, was Drive also a finalist for your overrated? It was, very close. It was for me as well. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's my number 10. What's your number nine? That's what I want to know. Number nine. My number nine is also from 2012, just like The Place Beyond the Pines is a 2012 movie. Right. Uh, um, I'm in this weird topsy-turvy world. Sure. Uh, um, and uh, this is, it's directed by, I have to look it up. It's directed by Lucien Casting Taylor and Verena Paravel. Okay. Billed as, crediting themselves as the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab. It's a documentary called Leviathan. This is not the 2014 uh, right, yes. Russian Leviathan, which is also a very good movie, and I think yeah. made my top 10 of 2014. Yeah, it was close in mine. That's a 2014 movie, uh, by the way. Yeah. That was, that was a good year. Uh, but no, Leviathan is a documentary about like a shipping or a ship, like a fishing crawler boat, except it's not at all what you think it is when I say that. I think apparently that's what they had planned that didn't work. So they basically just made an entire movie out of the GoPros that they clipped all over the boat or that sometimes fell into where the fish are being sorted or sometimes went overboard and fell into the ocean. It's a, I have to look up. I meant to look up the, the runtime here of, of, of Leviathan. Cause yeah, it's, it's 87 minutes. It doesn't have any narration or interviews or any real dialogue except for like some muffled stuff that you overhear. It's just a tour over 87 minutes of a live working fishing trawler that is so completely immersive and experiential and uh, so flattening the, 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 the space between the ship and the people who work it that that's, I think that's the term Leviathan replies to, I think refers to the idea that this ship is one whole living organism. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're presenting it to you with this kind of accidental way of making uh, a film that ended up being so such a powerful experience. Watch it as loud as you can. (laughs) Yeah. Dark. 
um, and and you'll get a sense of how how bowled over I was I was by it. I don't think I fully understood just how committed they were to the making of that movie. I still I, I still have not seen. I've seen the other Leviathan, and I saw the eighties monster movie Leviathan as well. <laughs> Which Peter, I, I never Peter saw Weller. that one. Well, we are, we're not doing a top 10 of the, of the 80s. Otherwise, obviously, Leviathan would be towards the top. But, um, the- and I haven't seen any of their other stuff because they made Sweetgrass in 2009, which I hear was good, um, which is a documentary about shepherds. Um, and then they just had one a couple years ago called uh, Kenniba, which is about cannibalism. Oh, my. Anyway. Interesting. But, yeah, um, Leviathan. Yeah, it uh, it sounds really wonderful. And again, going back to this, uh, this is a conversation we had a few weeks ago. It's it, my mind because of this conversation about the MCU and cinema and all that. It got me thinking about the concept of pure cinema, which people say, uh, and I'm not sure they totally understand what they mean when they say it. I don't think I know what I mean when I say it, but I have an idea. And when you describing something like Leviathan, it's like that's pure cinema, no yeah. story. There's nothing to really contextualize it. It contextualizes itself. Yeah. Um, okay. So next up for me is a film that you notably have not seen, uh, which is uh, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. Right. Um, uh, AV Club number one film of the decade. I know. Uh, I, I mean, I have no it, objections. Yeah, it's, it's it's in my. It certainly is. It's in my top ten. It was in my top ten of the year as well. Um, it, it's it's okay. All right. To bring these two things together, it's it's pure cinema as an action movie. When you watch modern action, it's still it's pretty impressive. Um, and then you see what George Miller is doing, and he just embraces the the beautiful chaos of what action can be, and when you have when everybody involved is insane, um, and they live in in a very dire situation, and uh, it's it's shot in a way that it's just it, it is constantly assaulting you, but in a way that is invigorating and. And that you just can't get enough of. Like, this is a world that you absolutely would never want to live in. But you love spending time there. Uh, and you would not want to live amongst these people. But you like looking at them. You like listening to them. Um, it's a mixture of fantasy and cold, hard, inescapable reality mixed all together. Um, <clears throat> and there's just this constant forward motion um they do you know we do stop every once in a while um for something horrible to happen uh and then we got to get back on the road and i think that's that's always been the uh, the appeal of the mad max movies is that there's just they're constantly moving um and the, the the little mini stories that he's able to tell within that, even if it's the story of this henchman has decided to jump from this car to this one going full speed. How is that going to happen? Uh, it's a film that is that is broadly very entertaining and also extremely detail oriented uh, to say nothing of the the story itself, which is feels very much like an old west type of thing, where there's one guy who rules, rules over this entire town uh, and has a uh, stable of mm-hmm. prostitutes and and not even prostitutes, but just concubines, I guess you could say, um, and they are 
rebelling against him. And then there's just this lone wolf out there who is helping them. And you're not even totally sure why, um, except just that it's the right thing to do. And so it, it has a Western quality to it and it even has a Western look to it just dialed up. Um, and it really is just a, 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 just a marvelous movie all around. Okay. Uh, one of these days I'll probably watch it. Um, next. Time. And when you do I, genuinely, this happens with me all the time as well. When I see a movie that people for years have been saying you should see, there's a tendency where I'm like, you're over exaggerating how much I'm going to like this. You are setting me up for disappointment. I, I do think that you would like Mad Max and I think you'd probably yeah. like it even more than I do. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I know my, uh, you couldn't like pick, to describe the plot of the movie, you couldn't pick something my wife is less interested in, but because it was talked about so much in like feminist terms, my wife was like, I'm going to check this out. So she borrowed the Blu-ray from our friend, a friend of the show, Dan Gavostin. Mm -hmm. And she watched it. I was like, what do you think? She was like, "Eh, it's all right. (laughs) So I I don't think it's, uh, it's, it wasn't her cup of tea. Yeah. I, I watched it with Jen and Jen, did not know what to expect and she really enjoyed it and she made a lot of noises throughout like whoa like stuff like that it's well, really cute you know my because my like i said I, I was my wife doesn't like action movies but mm-hmm. the movie that she loved maybe even more than i did was the raid because i think sure. as brutal as it was on how much as much time as she spent sort of like turning her head away from the screen um i think she was so impressed by the physicality and the choreography yeah. of everything that she liked it even more so i don't know i'h surprised she didn't like mad max more yeah Maybe she I mean, likes just people jumping around not yeah. cars yeah i mean the, yeah there's <laughs> there's just as much choreography in yeah. mad max but it's of machines and that's a big part of the that's a big theme of all of those movies all right moving on uh to a movie uh, some of these today doing this, putting this finally together today, some of these surprised me, but I really did keep coming back to the, what are the movies I find my thoughts drifting back to? And I am going to talk about 2016's, uh, another 2016 movie, uh, directed by Kelly Reichardt, certain women, which is a, right. a, a, a triptych, uh, story, um, based, or, or a triptych of stories all based on, the same I should be using this time I should have t- taken these notes or I should be using the time that you talk to get ready for the next one but I'm so captivated by what you're saying that I keep forgetting don't you patronize um, me <laughs> uh, they're all based on on stories by Maile Malloy I think is how you say that um, and so they have the, uh, the the thing the three stories have in common the things they have in common is that they're all about women mm-hmm. they all uh, take place in Montana with some connection specifically to Livingston. Uh, and that's it. Or they also share characters in way, in ways that are kind of surprising. Like Laura Dern's story is the first one and you see James, you meet James the very briefly and it's like, Oh, I guess they got James the for that one scene. And then the second story, he's the husband for the entire story, but you don't have any inclination that's coming. And there's just certain things, things like that. But, um, uh, so you're nodding, but you didn't see this. Uh, I didn't. I was laughing because I made a joke to myself okay. that I thought, thought was very funny. Uh, when you said melee Malloy, I was like, Oh, that's my favorite 1930s boxer. That sounds, yeah. When you said it like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so, um, the thing when I, when I talk about how much I think about the movie, what has maybe, I don't know if surprised me is that, in fact, it didn't surprise me. It's probably what I could have guessed would happen. Okay. The one of the three stories that was least immediately accessible to me 
which is the middle one with Michelle Williams, mm. is the one that I find myself thinking about the most. The um, the the first one with Laura Dern, uh, where she's a lawyer defending, um, or who has a uh, her client played by Jared Harris is trying to sue for mm. workman's comp. He loses the case. He ends up kind of snapping and going to his old workplace and taking a security guard hostage, and she's sent in as like a hostage negotiator. So that one obviously has a big like story. Story. It's got a gun in it. It's got like you know it's, uh, that that kind of thing. Uh, whereas the third one is a very very touching. I don't even know if we want to call it love story. It's a Lily Gladstone one, um, which is weird to say because it is also the, the Kristen Stewart one, but she's not the lead in it. No. Lily Gladstone plays a uh, ranch hand. Um, who starts taking uh, a twice weekly night class taught by Kristen Stewart's character, who's a lawyer from, from Livingston. Uh, and they start having this tradition of, uh, they meet, they become friends. They go out after every class, they go out to a diner together before Kristen Stewart has to make the long drive back to, to Livingston. And so you see this relationship developing between them. It's very, very touching, very sweet, great performance by Lily Gladstone. But those are the two that like, based on what I just told you, you can see the hook. And Lily Gladstone got like all the like got a lot of awards uh, consideration. I don't think she was nominated for an Oscar, but like no, I, uh, I think she got a, she was nominated for a Spirit Award. She was yeah, a lot of the critics, a lot of critics stuff. I think I ended yeah. up, if I remember correctly, in the draft that year. I think I ended up trading for her. I think I, I know someone did. I didn't remember who it was, but I remember thinking it was a good trade at the time. Maybe someone else did, um, and I wanted to, but that's not the point. Uh, we're not talking about the fantasy award season. No one cares, even though. All evidence to the contrary. Everyone seems to care. But, yeah. Um, I care too much. It's getting to me. Uh, well, that's because you're doing so great this year. No. Um, it's because I was doing great. Oh, and it just fell <laughs> and off. And now okay. people are catching up to me anyway. But anyway, so I described the first, the, the first and third are both very good. I very much immediately responded to them. The second story is Michelle Williams and James Agro and their daughter go out to where they're they've bought a plot of land and they're building a house to kind of camping on the land. And there's a neighbor who has a house played by, um, I think he's played by Rene Aubergine, Oh, I think. RIP. Um, yeah, RIP. Um, and he's got like a pile of like, uh, sandstone in his yard and they, and she's like, we should use that to build the house. And they go to his house and negotiate like they're James DeGro and the, and Rene Aubergine, are, negotiating how much to pay for the sandstone in the yard. So this is, this is the one that has the least yeah. like of a hook to it. And I would love that though. It sounds <laughs> yeah. great. But, and I think here's the thing is that we, uh, Kelly Reichardt is a very empathetic filmmaker. And so we're on the side of all three of these women mm-hmm. in that sense. But I think Michelle Williams character is the one that, Kelly Reichardt in the movie itself seems most conflicted about um, that she is in many ways she is the underappreciated uh, uh, matriarch of this family the you know uh, she has the domestic tasks and, and she's underappreciated but also the movie is kind of saying well maybe she is a little bit shallow maybe mm. she is a little bit you know maybe she she's a little more willing to uh lowball this guy for the sandstone in his yard the you know that she's a little more uh what's what i'm looking for calculating yeah um she's the hardest character to know and so, and because of that i've been thinking about her for 
uh, almost four years uh, <laughs> straight now. Um, uh, it, the, but the whole the, the whole movie is 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 beautiful and is told at Kelly Reichardt's own own pace and has uh, like I said these three great performances uh, five I guess if you six really if you count Christian Stewart James the and Jared Harris as mm-hmm. the sort of uh, and seven if you count Renee. Yeah. Well, and I was looking at the cast just now and apparently like John Getz is in there. Um, Who's John Getz? Uh, well, uh, he was in the fly. He was in blood simple. He played, uh, I think he played, uh, Mark's lawyer in the social network. Like, you'd know him if you saw him. He's, he's oh, that guy. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember who he is. In okay. Movie. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, looking, looking at the cast. It's a pretty good cast all around. Um, Okay. So next up for me, all right, I'm probably going to get some shit for this one. From Bec- me? No. Oh, okay. From listeners. But it's hard to know. Because the fi- it is a 2018 film and a film from the 70s, which is Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. No, it's a 2018 film. Okay. Look, no one's as strict about that sort of thing as I am. Yeah. And I consider that a 2018 film. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I didn't really have much of a problem with, with doing that because it's not as though the film were finished then yeah. and then just was sitting on a shelf somewhere. Like, it was finished in 2018 per Wells' wishes. Um, <clears throat> and this is a film that is is... Because it's so new, it's still something of a novelty and so many of us are just happy that it exists at all. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think it, it has taken on such legendary status that, um, and this isn't necessarily true, but, uh, it's taken on the status. We've all been anticipating it for so long and then it was made and then it's like, Oh wow. Okay. Like, and we immediately started thinking it in terms of Orson Welles filmography, but his filmography is a thing of the past. And so, like I haven't been having as many conversations about it as I have other movies that came out in 2018, 2017. And it's not because the people around me didn't like it. Many of them loved it, but I think all of us, including me, it's just like, well, it's part of Orson Welles. Welles isn't part of the, part of the modern day conversation. And so I'm interested to see years from now when people talk about Wells, but also when they just talk about the, the idea of film restoration or, or like director's cuts or whatever it is. Um, I I feel like this will be part of the conversation, but I also think it should be part of the conversation in regards to technology and things being well documented. Mm. Um, you know, when we talk about how, you know, everyone has a camera on their phone and everything is being well documented through Twitter and Facebook and all that. Well, obviously the other side of the wind didn't have any of that, but there is a filmmaker's impulse, uh, whether in, in the character, uh, played by John Houston, but then all these other characters that are making their own documentaries, they're doing interviews, they're doing behind the scenes stuff, they're doing TV stuff. All of these cameras are just gathered together uh, around this event and around this person trying to make sense of it. And the film is is oddly prescient. It's good outside of that, but it's oddly prescient. The idea, um, there's a wonderful line um, in Paddy Chayefsky's The Hospital in 1971, where... Uh, George C. Scott in the most George C. Scott way you can imagine is talking about how like the medical community, we are, you know, we are 
better able to cure diseases than we've ever been. And people are sicker than ever. And it's this idea Mm -hmm. that through all of these cameras and all this documentation, we are better able to capture each other and ourselves. And yet we are more lonely. We are more mysterious than we've ever been. And the fact that the, the Jake Hannaford, I don't, know. I don't remember. Anyway, uh, the if John Huston character. Cahill, but that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's yes, Rick indeed. Dalton's character from Bounty Law. Bounty Law. <laughs> I gotta watch that again. I've seen the movie twice, Me and I'll, I just want to see it again. <laughs> yeah. um, but but just, I said uh, earlier, to, no, yeah, never mind. Go oh. uh, and so it's, it's just, it's a film that has this, and it also, on top of everything else, has this breakneck pace. I mean, I know, th- I know people that are movie fans, and it just... It's so disjointed in so many ways. Don't get me wrong. There's a rhythm to it. It's not pure chaos. It looks like chaos, but it is very well organized, very well choreographed. There's, it makes a great deal of sense if you lock into those rhythms. But I know people that were just turned off by the way that it was made. And I think a lot of people that were Wells fans um, watched it expecting to get the classical Wells. And it's like, no, no, no. You got to think in terms of... F for fake. You got to think in terms of even something like Chimes at Midnight, where he was he was embracing a different type of editorial storytelling. And once you do that, it's still an incredibly Wellesian film in the story that it is telling. He tells stories about often powerful men that are insanely lonely um, and they build a world around them that that just essentially walls them off from the rest of the world. And yet they want nothing more than for somebody to come in, uh, into this, into this area. Uh, and that's what Jake uh, has done. Uh, the John Houston character, um, he's, he's walled himself off from other relationships, from his own feelings, maybe even from his own sexuality. Um, through just constant noise and activity and respectability. And so the film reflects that it is constant noise, constant activity, but at its heart is just such an incredible, Hmm, just such an incredible, (laughs) uh, sorry, I wasn't expecting to get emotional. I didn't when I first saw the film, um, there's just such an incredible loneliness and yearning to connect with other people, even if the character doesn't totally understand it. And so in that way, it's just as much citizen Kane Mm -hmm. as it is touch of evil, as it is chimes at midnight. It absolutely belongs in his filmography. And yet it is undeniably a 2018 film, both because that's when it was finished, but also this idea of constant activity and documentation and not bringing us any closer together. It's boy, you know what? Immediately. I wish I had put it higher on my list. (laughs) Um, now, I mentioned earlier, uh, well, just now we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but earlier I said Once Upon a Time in, in, in Hollywood and Uncut Gems were contenders for this year, mm-hmm. from this year for this list. And yet, that's not me saying those are going to be my top two films on my end of the year list. And I can't really put into words, but I used yeah. subconsciously a different criteria. I'm not entirely sure what it was. No, I get it. It's, this it's is, it, you know, with a couple of exceptions, like... My favorite film of 2012 was The Master, which is my number 15 here. You know, right. Moneyball was my is, favorite of 2011. That's not even here. This is what I'm saying here is that I put my number one film of 2018, I put in honorable mentions, A Bread mm-hmm. Factory. And yet another film from my top 10 of 2018 is coming in at number seven on the decade. Uh, and that is Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. Okay, yeah. 
Um, again, it's only been like only been a year, but this mm-hmm. is a movie that I think about all the time, mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I'm going to get highfalutin here. Oh, okay. Um, in, in, in talking about why I love this movie so much, because so much of it is so straightforward. And I find often that, I mean, sometimes I love, you know, your crazy ambitious, like cloud atlases and stuff like that. I love those movies too, but sometimes the movies I love not dissimilar to certain women are just very straightforward, but deeply felt mm-hmm. movies. And I was thinking, I'm not a film director, but I was thinking about the idea that sometimes we, you talked about self seriousness, self seriousness with, with, with Chris Nolan and, and, the, and a lot of, you know, Darren Aronofsky's uh, another one, Todd Phillips with the Joker, I feel like is very self serious. Yeah. Um, and that is, it's, it's weird to say because the movie, a movie is the creation of the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. They are in theory, it, it, the film is in this way of the filmmaker, but I, sometimes I think of the best films exhibit a relationship more between the film and the filmmaker, like between a person like me, you know, or you and someone you love. And, and I think about how, or, or maybe it's like raising a kid. I wouldn't know. I don't have raising, I don't have uh, kids, but you know, you want things for this person. You want the best for this person. But if you apply too stern a hand, if you try to force things, you're going to fuck it up or it's going to react back to you. And, and so I think leave no trace is such a perfectly beautiful film because I think that Deborah Granick and the film love one another and she mostly just lets it be mm-hmm. and it becomes all the more beautiful for it, even though it has, uh, you know, it has some, it has some visual metaphors that I really, uh, really love and find touching the fact that the, uh, Ben Foster and Thomas and McKenzie's character briefly, or Ben Foster's character briefly gets a job at a Christmas tree farm, which like couldn't be more like what Christmas trees represent could yeah. not be more, could not be further from his relationship to the human race. And there's something very tragic about that. Uh, I think that's when that one's kind of elegant. There's also like, uh, Thomas and McKenzie, like befriending a beekeeper. And it's like, bees are, social creatures and my dad and I aren't and like that, that one's kind of heavy handed, but all of it is so, uh, uh, it, it just, it just happens with like, she's Deborah Granick is so sure of the movie uh, that she's making of the story she's telling of the, of the things that she wants to say that she doesn't at any point have to force it. Um, it's also, you've got two, two astounding performances at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some other great, uh, performances. I love, um, oh, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the guy who, the, the Christian guy who runs the Christmas tree farm. Did you, wait, did you, you saw it, right? Nope. You didn't see the no trace. No. Again, I keep picking movies that I think you would really like that. I keep I've, assuming I've, you would see. Yeah, I have, I have no doubt. I, Deborah Granick made uh, winter's bone. Yes. Winter's bone. Which I, is, which I adored. And I went back and listened to my, uh, the movie journal where I mm. said, and I'm going to repeat what I said there that I love winter's bone as much as you do. Leave no trace is better than winter's bone. And it's not even close. Mm. That's how much, that's how good leave no trace is. Well, everything uh, that you're saying is, is very much the kind of thing that I do enjoy uh, a movie that is willing to let its characters go at their own pace. Yeah. Um, speaking of highfalutin, this is something that I, that I've said before, maybe not on this show, but I've said it, uh, in public settings that, if you like when you're a writer director and you're really paying attention 
after a certain point, the characters you're writing, they tell you what they're going to say. And of course that's all very, it's they're not actually real. I get it. But when you're locked in Mm -hmm. to their voice and what they're doing, when you have created characters as perfectly as this, then it feels, it feels wrong to steer them in this direction. And it's like, no, i let's let's see this thing out and i i have seen movies where they make characters usually if they're part of a genre which makes a certain degree of sense but it, it, they dir- the director pushes them in a direction it's like that's not how that would have gone and it sounds like this is yeah much more organic um the actor i was trying to think of is jeff cober okay um you you know him you would recognize that name song. sounds he has familiar. a very distinctive uh face i'm going to show you a, a pic picture of him here that guy oh yeah okay yeah, yeah. um uh, he's really good. And then because I listened to that movie journal, I was reminded of, um, I related to you a part of the movie that really made me laugh and you laughed and I'm going to say it again because okay. it's super funny. There's a part in one of the places where they stop where she, Thomas, Thomas and McKenzie, um, befriends a local boy who's, um, uh, who raises rabbits for the four H club. That's his like hobby and his goal is he's building his own tiny house, you know, mm-hmm. the tiny house. And he's going to go, um, like attach it to a trailer and, and go live around the world. And so at this point he's building it, it's just a frame, yeah. but he gives her a tour of the tiny house <laughs> and he says, um, I'm going to put a, a I'm going to put a window here above the sink so I can look out while I'm doing dishes. Pretty nice. <laughs> uh, anyway, I want to relate that. Um, yeah. Uh, leave no trace. That's my number seven. What is your number seven? My number seven is another Damien Chazelle movie, a movie that I don't think I loved at the time. No, so I, there are things I loved about it at the time. Uh, but since then I've seen it a million times and I've come to appreciate it, which is whiplash. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is an imperfect film. It's certainly an imperfect script. Um, but part, you know, you were talking about La La Land and that, that's a film that ultimately has not that it's advocating for this for everybody, but for its characters, they make a choice that frankly, 99.9% of movies would say that's the wrong choice and say, no, no, no. It's all about family. It's all about relationships. And obviously those are important. Um, but Damien Chazelle also, understands in a way that is uncompromising and sometimes uncomfortable that like, yes, family is important, but there are a lot of amazing human achievements and there was probably some neglect going on (laughs) as a result of that. Now that's not to say that you can, that it's an either or situation. It can be both. But in the case of something like whiplash, um, I find myself remembering something like Steven Spielberg said, I think about Jaws that, uh, like the death of Alex Kittner. Um, and then with, um, close encounters of the third kind, the fact that Richard Dreyfus gets on the ship and right. flies away. And Spielberg has said, he goes, yeah, that's the kind of decision that a young single filmmaker makes. He goes, if I made those movies now, I don't know that I would have done that. And it's like Damien Chazelle is a, is a notably young director, um, who boyish, but very much so. Uh, and I guess dreamy. No, I'll stick with boyish. I think that's fine. Um, bedroom eyes. Now we're talking. Uh, so (laughs) 
What does bed, what does bedroomize mean? I don't think I know what that means. I don't know. All right. Um, I think you can probably connect the dots pretty yeah, yeah. easily. Yeah, like I look in his eyes and I imagine what would it be like to be in the bedroom with this guy. Yeah, I think that's the idea. Okay, got it. Um, I mean, he makes you sleepy. Sure. Well, that's <laughs> certainly not the case with him because yeah. on top of everything else, Whiplash uh, has is extremely propulsive and just keeps you interested. Um, and it's and it's just this film that talks about like what is the price of greatness and. It sounds so strange because I am married. Jen and I are working on adopting a kid. So obviously I'm investing in family. I have a number of friends. I invest in relationships. But there are times, not to necessarily get biblical, but uh, Paul, uh, in one of his letters, I don't remember which one, he actually says, I wish that everyone could be as I am. And in the context, what he's talking about is unmarried mm. so that he can get shit done. And it's really interesting, uh, this concept there. Um, and of course, I'm not advocating that someone just be alone. But at the same time, like if you're going to do something, anything professionally, artistically, whatever it is, if you're going to do something, don't use relationships as a cop out. Don't cop out at all. Do it the best way you can. Push yourself to the point that people might say you're being ridiculous. And so like but that's the thing is the film is constantly talking about this line. And there is a line. There's a line that you don't cross except when you need to mm. uh in order to make the best possible work of art or whatever it is that you're doing, like there, there's going to come a moment where you make a sacrifice. Life is about sacrifices. Sometimes you're sacrificing career or freedom so that you can be with the person that you love. And then sometimes you sacrifice time with the people that you love so that you can do this thing that you, that you're passionate about. And it's just a film that embraces this and doesn't come down on any particular side. Uh, and in the midst of it, it's it's so self-assured in the way that it's shot, the way that it's cut, the performances, um, so that y it's, it's frustrating, but it's invigorating. It's a film that I show to my students, and it's a, it's a huge crowd pleaser. And one of my students this semester, uh, where I taught only high school students getting college credit, um, we had an extended break. And I asked my students uh, afterwards, like, okay, what has everyone seen? And one guy raised his hand. He goes, I watched Whiplash five times. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, a couple of them were just for me, but also I just wanted to show it to everybody else. He's like, there's just something. He goes, there's just something about that movie. And it's like, yeah, the something is a message that you don't hear very much in movies carried out. Yeah to its negative and positive, uh, uh, extremes. And, uh, it's a film that like, again, it's not perfect, but boy, it has stayed with me. Uh, yeah, I find myself thinking about it and also thinking, man, I wish almost anyone but Miles Teller were in it. I'm just not a Miles Teller fan. I think is the problem. I've, I've kind of, I've, I've come to embrace his film. I think there is a, a definite arrogance there that he, I think it's actually, I think it's an, unself-conscious performance oh that's the opposite of our i thing. know i think with this and with the spectacular now he's playing very flawed characters that he as an actor keeps wanting you to forgive like i feel like he doesn't want he's afraid of being of the character being judged too harshly when that's what the movie is requiring it's, but i do think that there's 
I think the root of him not, uh, I think he doesn't judge the character very harshly and maybe he should, but I think he also, he might be, you know what? He might be playing the theme of the film that like, Hey, he's doing these, these things, he's pushing himself and pushing other people away, but it's all in, in service of this larger talent. Uh, and that's not necessarily the worst thing, but I can definitely understand how doing that could distance you from the character. All right. Uh, moving on to my number six then. Yep. Uh, my number six should be uh, no surprise. I think to people who know me that it made uh, the list and that is, from 2015, Todd Haynes' Carol. All right. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, transition that we were just talking about, uh, performance, because mm-hmm. I've, I, I've admitted on the show before and sometimes knocked myself for not valuing performance enough. I've tried to remedy that in, in recent years, but, but by uh, focusing so much on the, filmmaking and the choices of the technicians and, 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 and things, which Carol is a beautifully technically made oh my, yes. uh, movie, um, that, um, sometimes I forget, or maybe I intentionally sidestep the question of performance because I don't feel equipped to, hmm. to analyze it. It's the same with like music. A lot of the times I'm like, yeah, that's good. That music is good, but yeah. I often don't know how to talk about it beyond it. Yeah. But I have to be, as talented as Todd Haynes is as beautiful as the cinematography is the production design, the costume design I got. Oh yeah. Uh, um, as great as it all is, Carol wouldn't be Carol without Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rooney Mara, by the way, is the lead. I know her name's not Carol, but, uh, um, she's the, yeah. and despite her being nominated for supporting actress yes. in the old BPs, we had two lead actress nominations. Yeah. For Carol, and if anything, might go the other way. Actually, with Carol being the supporting character, yeah, yeah. If, if mean, you have to choose one, yeah. I mean, it's the movie is called Carol, not because it's about Carol, but because it's about basically this thing. Carol is the most important, life changing thing that ever happened to Therese, right? Yeah. Therese, Therese, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's so it, it's it's a movie that makes me think about think about acting and think about the idea of falling in, in, in love, um, and how for all, at least for the way that this movie wants to portray it, all the technical prowess in the world couldn't get me to that feeling, remind me what it feels like to have fallen in love mm-hmm. and to be in love the way that Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara's performances do. Um, I think this is not the sort of thing I normally talk about because I'm like, uh, I have Catholic shame and stuff like that. Oh, okay. But, um, I don't think that the sex scene in Carol is the sexiest sex scene of the decade, but it might be the best sex scene of the decade in that it, it's the only sex scene I can think of in a movie this decade that I get teary eyed just thinking about because it's, it's so beautiful and it's such a culmination almost to the point of being like an eruption or explosion. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's interesting you say that, um, obviously in the circles that I, that I run in, there are a lot of people that say that nudity is never necessary in a film. And while I do think that there's plenty of exploitative nudity out there and I, and I do feel like a director should like think twice or maybe even three or four times, especially <laughs> these days before 
usually he decides right. uh, to have nu- uh, nudity and sexuality in his film. Um, that's not to say that it is not properly used in certain movies. And I think, yeah, that sometimes, like I remember, I do not really care much for the movie Atonement, but I remember thinking that like when in the scene where these two characters who've been apart for so long, when they finally come together, I remember being like, like, I, it's weird. I said this to myself where I was like, look, I don't want to be a perv, but I feel like there needs to be a sex scene there, (laughs) you know, Uh, because there is an emotional aspect to it. And there's, and that scene is done with tremendous emotional sensitivity. Like you said, it's not the, the sexiest sex scene, but it is the most, for lack of better term, potent, uh, and just emotionally, I don't know. It's uh, there, there's a lot there and it's, it, it, it makes everything just so tangible, um, in yeah. their relationship. Now I'm trying to think what is the sexiest movie of the decade. My mind, this is my mind. This is a kinky movie. My mind immediately goes to the handmaiden. Okay. Which, yeah, I didn't see that, but one also either, that but that's be what I heard. Me being, because it's like, yeah, it's lesbian. So maybe I'm like being the crude, like typical straight male. Who's like, <laughs> Whoa, two chicks. <laughs> that was my takeaway from the handmaid. But it's two chicks from uh, in uh, Carol as well. Yeah, that's true. And I remember... But it's not kinky. Uh, one of the reasons that I actually did not see Blue as the Warmest Color, despite it being people saying that it was a really great movie, is that even the def- even like its most ardent defenders said, like, those sex scenes made me a little uncomfortable. It felt like the For director the, was kind of lingering a little bit. Yeah, I would say that. And I, I say, I, I, I think of... Uh, I say this sort of half, you know, uh, contr- being a contrarian, but I kind of believe it. I think of Blue as the Warmer's Color as a food movie before I think of it as a sex movie <laughs> because it's also, it's really like it's an Epicurean movie in, in, in yeah. many ways. As, as, in, as indulgent as, as it is in its sex scenes, it also indulges in the uh, succulence of uh, a beef bolognese. Um, <laughs> I remember, I honestly remember, like, it's one of the few movies, like, I, I don't know, you don't have the same taste that I do in food, but I don't know if you've ever had this experience where someone eats something in a movie and like for days later, you're like, I'm not gonna be able to rest until I eat that. Uh, Yes. I mean, we have different tastes, but I definitely uh, have had instances like that. And it's usually a function of sound design. Like if somebody eats a burger and there's just, of course, burgers aren't crunchy, but the bun can have just the right kind of so it's of usually iceberg lettuce maybe will crunch? Sure. Yeah. And I don't even like hamburgers with lettuce on them. <laughs> um, but then like like in Ratatouille, they like they like crunch the bread. I'm like, fuck, I just want bread right now. <laughs> um, it happens a lot with coffee. Like if I see somebody drinking just a well-shot cup of coffee, it's like, well, this is my life now. Yeah. Um, but back to Blue is the warmest color, though. I was so for it's probably weeks afterwards was craving beef mm-hmm. bolognese so bad that I was in Vegas with my wife mm-hmm. and I won a bunch of money at craps, a bunch by my standard. I don't bet that big. Right. So a bunch means like a couple hundred, uh, it's not bad. Yeah. A couple hundred, maybe 300 at, uh, at craps. And, uh, I was immediately like, and you blew it all. I was like, <laughs> let's go out to dinner. Let's go out to a nice, again, by our standards. Nice. Not, yeah, there are restaurants in Vegas that are oh, of course. ridiculously, but we went to like a nice, Italian restaurant and I got a bottle of wine and I got a big plate of beef bolognese and I was like, I've been wanting this for two weeks. Hmm. Uh, we're not talking about blues. Or right, we're, we're talking, talking about, about Carol, Carol yeah. but I'm done. We, we can move on to your number yeah. six. Carol is a beautiful movie. Um, I do. I take issue with the score as you know, because it's, if you want Philip glass, just get Philip glass. <laughs> Don't like, 
Carter Burwell has a very specific feel to him and the film seems to not want that. But anyway, but yeah, it's a, it's a gorgeous film. Um, all right. So we're to number six, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Number six, the aforementioned force majeure, uh, directed by Ruben Ostland. Um, yeah, it's, this this is a film that just has everything and you know and you have no idea that it's going to it doesn't suggest that um just it, it's a film that thematically is about so much but it's also just directed with such a sure hand um such careful framing such careful placement of characters because he knows in advance it's going to be very important where everybody is at a very important at a, at a crucial moment in the story. And so he gets us thinking in those terms through uh, character placement, camera placement, all of that. Um, so that like he's, he's essentially without us even knowing it, he's training us to pay close attention to that. Uh, hmm. So that when it happens, we, f- we immediately start thinking back like, okay, well, wait a minute. Now, was he in front or was he behind? I can't quite tell. What, what about that glove? You know, it's, it gets you thinking in those terms. Like, this is a film that, that can't be sloppily directed. Um, it needs to be so precise. And yet it's, so it feels almost like, like there's a mystery at the core of it. But more important, but the mystery is, is an emotional and relational one as well. And this idea of you know what are we when the person when the person that you love lets you down and they don't even mean to they're not trying to and you just can't help but see them in a different way Mm. and and you wonder like can i even continue and it doesn't have to be like a spouse or, or anything like that it could just be a friend and you're just like is this something I can ever actually forget? Is this something I can forgive? Is this something that requires forgiveness? Or because you know that, that if this person had it to do over again, or if they were able to give it more overtly conscious thought, they would do it differently. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that, but then there is also tremendous, farcical absurdity yeah. in the performances and not since the host has a crying scene been so funny. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing I was going to say is it's not that it's vacillating between the two things. It's yeah. That, that, that crying scene. When, when I think about the movie, I don't think about the avalanche scene. I think first and foremost about him crying in the, in the hallway outside the hotel room door. And it's, uh, and it is funny, but you also feel real, you feel bad for him while you're laughing at, at, at yeah, him. Yeah. Uh, and then that, the, the last scene, which I won't necessarily yeah. ruin like that adds such a complexity to the theme, to the, the character of the, of the wife and this feeling of like, and, and it just, it's such an empathy, uh, such a, such an exercise in empathy because up to a certain point, uh, up until this point, the wife at best has sympathized with the husband while also being very frustrated, understandably. So I would say at him, but then we come to this situation and suddenly there is an empathy, this, this feeling of like, well, wait a minute, what am I doing in? I won't, again, I won't say the situation, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's such a, so much of what, I mean, any, any movie that I talk about it, I'm going to talk about how it's just so beautifully realized and so much of this movie, especially, but all of them just requires such a balance of tone and, uh, yeah, it, to such an extent that, yeah, when, when you were talking earlier about 
Nat Faxon and Jim Rash remaking it from the casting, like even from the casting choices, like they're not going to get this right. Mm-hmm. Like it could be shot for shot and it's, but tonally you can just tell it's not going to be right. Yeah. Uh, did you ever see, this was a maybe on my long list for the, didn't even make the short list, but uh, from 2011, the loneliest planet, the Cal Garcia Bernal. Oh no, I didn't. Oh, but I know, you know, the, yes. Yeah. It's a much more serious take on a similar type yeah. of, uh, not that force majeure isn't serious part of yeah. so great is that it is. All right. All right. We're halfway there. Uh, <laughs> moving on to number five. I'll try to speed things up a bit um, for my part. Uh, number five, another movie that I have uh, revisited uh, more than once. And this is the oldest movie on my list going all the way back to 2010. Okay. Although again, this is my rules. Mm-hmm. 2010, it was a 2011 release in the U S but it's a okay. 2010 release uh, internationally in its home country of, of Thailand, and that is Apichat Pongwirasethakul's Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. Whew. Uh, um, uh, I admire your uh, your I, commitment. Yeah, I got all the syllables. I just don't know if I <laughs> put the emphasis in the right place. I yeah. have no idea. This is why everyone just calls him Joe. I don't know if you know that. His oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, just call him Joe. Um, so Uncle Boon Me, who who can recall his past lives, is to the extent that it's that it has a story. It's about uh, an old man who is very sick uh, with uh, his kidneys are failing or something. I can't remember. And um, uh, a couple of people are around to take care of him in his sort of uh, rural um, uh, home. And while they're taking care of him, they sort of share stories and memories, but also like a ghost shows up and then um, his son shows up as maybe a ghost or maybe he's been turned into a monkey. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, like, so much of the movie is, seems so impenetrable. But unlike, say, Leviathan, which is also, uh, would also be subcategorized as sort of, like, experimental, right? Uh, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, is also very funny and also very scary, which mm-hmm. is something we'll get into... Um, yeah, all the like images I've seen from the film look frightening. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into when we get to my number one movie of the year uh, of the decade. Uh, we'll talk about this too. That uh, I have, I am a sucker for movies that are not necessarily horror movies, but have horror in them. And there is there are a couple of moments in Uncle Boon Me where I get that skin tingly mm-hmm. crawl thing, which is what I'm looking for when I watch a scary movie. Um, and yet it also has like a horny talking catfish. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun uh, movie that is best enjoyed, I think, by surrendering, surrendering yourself to it, much the way that Uncle Boomi uh, is learning to surrender himself to death. That's really what it's, the movie is, I think, ultimately about the, uh, this, this idea that uh, life and death are pretty much this part of the same thing and that the closer he gets to the sort of uh the veil between worlds or whatever the more porous it becomes and, mm-hmm. and he is seeing things from from both sides uh it's very beautiful it's very funny um it is enigmatic uh but just let it just let it happen to you hmm. is the way to watch the movie all right. My number five is a movie that you do not want to happen to you. And that is Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing. Oh, yeah. Um, 
also was and I didn't and I didn't see uh, the look of silence, uh, which is sort oh, of the okay. follow up to yeah. it. Um, but I he, think of it much like uh, I keep talking about the AV Club, mm-hmm. um, but they uh, for their top 100 films of the decade, they put it as one entry. Act of Killing, Look of Silence as as just one entry. They're and they're I, two separate things. Yeah, right? they are two separate things. But then they were, I think, produced. I, I, I mean, I think Josh Oppenheimer knew he was making the other one when he was, knew he was making one when he was making okay. the other. So I think they are part of the same concept. Yeah, almost the same impulse. Yeah. Um, okay. Like two sides of it. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'll say the Act of Killing still made perfect sense to me, even without watching <laughs> The Look of yeah. Silence, um, which came after. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, speaking of balance of tone, I would I would not say that the act of killing is funny, but it is absurd. So much of it is absurd. Mm-hmm. But not unlike Dr. Strangelove or, you know, movies like that, the absurdity is, you, you choke, whatever laughter you have, you choke on when you realize it, like, People are dying, many people, um, and it do, and yes, they're dying often for absurd reasons at the hands of absurd people. But that that actually only makes the the absurdity more horrendous um, because sometimes if you if you just approach something head on uh, and very in a very straightforward way, then. Yes, the real the real terror and the real mournful quality will come through, but there is something there, there's an incredulity to movies like Doctor Strangelove or Brazil or something like this, where it takes a very real thing in this case and a very real uh, thing and with actual people, it is a documentary, um, and it takes this real thing and recognizes just the sheer audacity, not an ad, not an admirable kind of audacity, but the sheer audacity of everything that's going on mm-hmm. and being, and just like, like the movie is just throwing its hands up and being like, I don't know what to do here. And there's something inherently hysterical in, in every definition of the word about that about a, a director who's like, I, I'm just going to let these people talk because it, what can I add to this? But of course he is adding some things to it, mm-hmm. uh, including, uh, these, these reenactments. Um, and what I, what I love about it is that so much of the movie is so specific to this region, this country, this time in its history. And yet it can still be as, as we've said at this point for 12 plus years, um, actually coming up closer to 13, uh, that like this, oddly enough, the more specific you go, the more universal uh, a film or a, or a work of art can be. And this type of casual tyranny that is sometimes touted as heroism is something that every country can learn from. Um, because at its core, at its core is a real, lack of empathy with the people that are not like you. And I would say that's a theme that is very important. Uh, it's always important, but it's very relevant, uh, these days. And it's, it is, it's a movie that is shocking and, and yet also exciting 
and but what I like is that its ending is such that in its own way it's almost hopeful the idea that even monsters there's still something in them that knows I've done something very 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 wrong and I probably can't redeem myself for it and so granted this is a this is a fucked up kind of hope but the idea that even the people that get away with it maybe they will make themselves miserable because they still know and that might be a hope against hope but the film kind of has that quality to it and uh yeah it is look there, there's only one way to describe it and that is the fifth best movie of the decade <laughs> all right so uh number four for me now we already know from one of my other mentions well one of your upcoming one is yes ones. i think this is the last chance on my list we might have overlap because i know that you love this movie okay uh, it was the cause of a, f- uh, of a, of a first ever on battleship retention. All right. If you remember in, this was in February of 2018. Oh, okay. The first time you and I ever had the same number one movie of the year. That's right. My number four is Paul Thomas Anderson's <gasps> phantom thread. That's right. Is it, on, it's not on your list? No. Okay. Um, you know, it, if I were to watch it again, it might be. Um, but I've only seen it the once. I, I adored it at the time. I still do. Um, but I think I'd probably need to rewatch it. Even though some of these movies I've only seen once. That one, I think I would need to watch again. Well, I talked about tactility with Carol. You've got sure. it again. again and great here. costumes. Uh, great costumes. This one, the voices are all also tactile. The um, I think when I watch, because I've seen it a couple times, when the characters talk... I think about ASMR videos. I don't know if you're watching ASMR videos. <laughs> oh yeah. But the way that the they're mixed or recorded, yeah. the dialogue in this movie is so often like they're not talking loud, but it's very close to the microphone type mm-hmm. of thing. And so you get that kind of ASMR, uh, effect, but it's, um, uh, there's, uh, there, there's a school of thought that you can interpret almost any movie to be, about filmmaking in a way. Uh, obviously act of killing is yeah. very, uh, overtly at times about, uh, filmmaking, even if it's that only a means to an end. Um, but one thing I think about when I watch Phantom thread is the idea of Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, I believe is, uh, I don't know what this word means, but he's probably a genius. Uh, I don't know in terms of filmmaking. I think he's one of the top yeah. working today. Um, and Reynolds Woodcock is, let's say a genius within Mm -hmm. this, within this world. And they're both working in sort of what are thought of as vulgar art forms because they're so commerce driven, Mm -hmm. you know, Reynolds Woodcock makes these beautiful dresses and then he has to sell them to people. He has to Mm -hmm. give it to someone, to someone else takes his thing and does whatever they want with it, including taking a nap in the middle of the day in the dress. Yeah. Uh, If you remember one of the best scenes in the movie, they're all the best scene in the movie. Um, it's a great, perfect movie. Um, and I, I, so I, I often, uh, when I, when I've watched the movie uh, a couple of times, I think about Paul Thomas Anderson, like, and I guess maybe I'm thinking about this specifically, especially because I, you and I do what we do mm-hmm. from a critic standpoint, that Paul Thomas Anderson pours a year of his life into making this object. Yeah. And then I look at it for a couple of hours and I turn around and I say, hey, I sum it up. Here's yeah. what it is. I, t- I and you know, um, 
for all I know, the things that I think, even though I love his movies, the things that I think about them and the, the interpretations and the lessons or whatever um, that I've taken from them, they might drive Paul Thomas Anderson insane if he heard them. Right. They might be nowhere near what he uh, <laughs> what he was thinking about when he he made the movie. And I'd, a part of me thinks that the, the Reynolds Wood, Reynolds Woodcock character is. Uh, is Paul Thomas Anderson working that out? Sure. Um, and that um, Alma is the, on the one hand, the only person who truly gets him, mm-hmm. but also a person who is not a sycophant, who's not just going to give him what he, he wants. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's maybe it's, um, and somebody who is uniquely committed to getting him out of his own way. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> which he find which once he discovers, he, he loves it. Yeah. That's uh, uh so yeah, uh, maybe it's, um, old hat to, to interpret a movie as a, you know, psychotherapy about the director's own life. But I think any uh, movie that's any movie made about art, is probably right. secretly about filmmaking. But here's uh, here's the thing, because I said with, with La La Land, I couldn't talk at the time about the ending. Something about the 2017 that I, that I could only allude to at the time, right. which is that we had two major movies, two great movies that year that had poisonous mushrooms as a plot point. What was the other one? The Beguiled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um which was all it did. I'm glad I don't eat mushrooms. Uh, oh, I love better mushrooms. safe than sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, the big Isle was never quite a contender for it today. But I definitely, when I was looking at the movies of the 2010s, I did go. Ah, the big Isle is really good. Yeah, it was it was a contender okay. uh, for me for a while. Uh, all right. So what's number four for you? Number four for me. I don't remember if you've seen this movie or not. It is Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. I've never seen it. All right. Um, I saw Sexy Beast. Yep. Yeah. That's it. I didn't see Birth. I didn't oh, okay. see Under the Skin. Has he made one since then? Not that I'm aware of. I know um, he made a short film because I got some email about it. He made a short film. Yeah, that, that tracks um, as far as his level of accessibility. Um, yeah, Under the Skin, uh, speaking in terms of, of pure cinema, there is definitely a story. Uh, I'd say it's loose. It's more just... Um, a series of, of events, but they they come about because a character makes a series of choices with a very specific goal. So ostensibly there is a story, um, but it's more of it's, it's more. Okay. So the, I've been using the word haunting that certain movies are very haunting. Uh, the word I'd use for this one is hypnotic. Uh, whether it be Mika Levy's amazing music combined with the cinematography, what? I forgot to talk about how great Johnny Greenwood's music is in Phantom Thread. Oh, well, literally that's in my notes. But, uh, boy, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Like that is, it's a score that I, we're talking about Johnny Greenwood now. Yeah. Uh, it's a score that I listen to and it's beautiful. And yet he goes so high with the oh, strings yeah. sometimes that you're like, you're hurting me. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's about right for the movie that <laughs> yeah. it's in. You're driving on the street and dogs are following you. <laughs> um, so, okay. But uh, yeah, back to Under the Skin. Um, so of course, it's all of these things working together to just create uh, this this pacing, this rhythm, this look that just is meant to just pull you in, which of course is exactly what the main character is doing, is she lures men in with her 
beauty and just her invitation. Uh, and as a result, the film has to do that as well. And it, and it goes through this enough times that frankly, we don't really connect with the men anymore. And they're not necessarily, the, the men are not like these, um, like these exploitative, like horn dogs or anything like that. They're just men out at bars and they're like, Oh, a beautiful woman, uh, wants to go home with me or wants to take me home. Like, I'm not going to say no to that. Like, and so the film does not make them out to be, uh, jerks or anything, but at the same time, it doesn't sympathize with them either. It sees them the way she does as, uh, potential victims, potential fodder. Um, but then, there are some other variations where uh, she r- comes across this young man who has a, a facial deformity, um, mm-hmm. played by BP nominee, uh, Adam Pearson. And suddenly there's just a, it's like this feeling of like, uh, life has already been pretty rough to this person. Do I really want to contribute to that? Um, and so on one hand, there's a lot of real human empathy there, but on the other, there's something so tragic that like, Oh, the only reason that I'm not killing you right now is because you look so different than everybody. It's like, I'm singling you out. Uh, like (laughs) I pulled you in, like I pulled everybody else in, but you know what? Uh, You're still different than everyone else. Like there's, there's an inherent judgment there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet we're still in this case, we're on board with it because it kind of saves the guy's life. Um, but within all that, just the visualization of just this black, this black room that appears to be underwater and just these guys will just float through it. But it looks like they're just in absolute nothingness. You don't see where the water or the liquid begins or ends. They just are there uh, and they'll be walking towards her in a completely black room. And then only when you realize that, oh, where did their legs go? Oh, they are walking into water that she is standing on top of. It, I mean, it's, 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 uh, hmm. beautiful and terrifying and, uh, and also there's just such vulnerability. There's a great deal of nudity in this film, um, that I think is absolutely necessary on, on everybody's part. Um, because I think it's just a, a film that's interested in how human relationships work, how human empathy works. Uh, and then there's, there's a moment towards the end where our main character sort of has had, has the tables turn on her. And in my mind, as that was starting to happen, I was just like, I think the music's about to start up. And sure enough, (laughs) sure enough, it did. And it, it didn't feel, it felt less like a moment of predictability, uh, and more like an affirmation because that music comes in at very specific moments. And, uh, and it just is such a, I've not read the, the source material or anything like that, but I'd be curious to read it because I'm at, this film is so inherently cinematic. I feel like, uh, the, the book or story, I don't remember what it is, uh, must be just such a different kind of animal because this is a, a movie through and through. All right. Moving on to my number three home stretch here. Whew. Uh, this is going back to what I was saying to the honor mention another long one. Okay. Uh, this one's almost three hours long, I think. Uh, and by the way, my 
three, two, and one all 2016. You would have deduced that if you uh, were listening to me from the beginning. I said there were five. I haven't been listening to you this entire time. uh, I've already talked about about two. That would be certain women in La La Land. Uh, So yeah, the next three all 2016. But this one uh, is Andrea Arnold's American Honey. Oh okay. Uh, which is a movie in which uh, first-time actor, I think, Sasha Lane uh, plays a young woman who's recruited into a traveling magazine mag crew. They okay. travel around the country selling magazine subscriptions. Um, you've got kind of a... And I'm saying this because you said it, even though you didn't see the movie, when I was telling you about it on the, on the movie journal years ago, you were like, oh, so kind of like an Oliver Twist situation. And mm. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it is. So basically, uh, I guess you'd say it right at the... Riley Kyo, Kyo, I don't ever know. Kyo is how I've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, uh, one of the more talented actors working today, I think, uh, young actors, um, is sort of the Fagin. Okay. And then Shia LaBeouf is sort of the artful dodger in that uh, in that situation. He's the one who shows her the ropes. Yeah. Um, but then she develops a crush on him, just the way Oliver developed a crush on the Artful Dodger. <laughs> We've uh, all got our interpretations of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but there, there's not really much. I mean, I, I've laid out some events that happen, but there's not really much of a plot. It's mostly uh, a, a, a sort of uh, close to like modern day traveling Lord of the Flies, but not. They don't. It's not that was a bad comparison because things don't fall apart. It's basically just like young people being young people, and all of the. Yeah, it was never that together in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Something falling apart doesn't look that different than Uh, when it's all theoretically together. But all all the danger that implies and also a lot of the sex that that, that, that implies um, uh, takes place. But I'm always so skeptical of movies about teenagers, especially about teenagers behaving badly. Sure. Because so often, so often, I think of like... um, uh, Catherine Hardwick's 13 is a movie that I really hated. Um, I never, I never saw it. Yeah, I think you're fine. Um, so often these movies are, even if they're ostensibly about these young people, they're clearly told from the point of view of responsible adults. And it, there's an after school special or not after school special, but like, uh, one of those like scare your parents lifetime yeah, type yeah. of movies, like about, the pregnancy ring or, like or whatever. A, like a very special episode. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, but it's like, it's supposed to like scare like, oh, I, I can't believe these young people are getting up to this. I hope my, uh, do I know where my kids are? That sort of thing. American Honey has none of that moralizing what's, at all. What's your take on the work of Larry Clark? Uh, it's exploitative, um, sometimes very powerful. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think I need it, but um, yeah, there's a lot of it. I've basically only seen kids and bully. Yeah, I don't well, think I've seen uh, anything else. Oh, I saw another one, and uh, now I can't Ken, remember. Ken Park, uh, What's Up Rockers? What's Up Rockers, that's what I saw. Yeah, I didn't um, see any of those. Yeah, it's... <laughs> you, may, you say, like, oh, this is told from the point of view of, like, a, an adult who's, like, got it together. It's like, well, that's not the vibe I get, uh, an adult who's got it together, but oh, it no, definitely... Oh, told from the point of view of an, of an adult who... Uh, Maybe he's a little too interested. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about, but, but, uh, there's such a complete lack of judgment of, of, of the characters. Um, the, the movie just seems to be more of them than about them. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Um, 
and it yeah it, it was the uh, it was a, it was there was a, a journey towards um uh, from Shia LaBeouf being a celebrity personality that I found really obnoxious to him now being a draw for me <laughs> like yeah. Shia LaBeouf being in a movie is a draw for me and American Honey is a big part of the reason why he's he, he he's amazing um as a totally charming scumbag uh, uh who then becomes a uh who's so he like he's the person that sasha uh sasha lane's character looks up to and yet when he's around riley kyo suddenly he becomes cowed uh riley cowed is what he hey. becomes uh, uh and, and and subservient but the, yeah like like i said the movie's nearly three hours long it's got this incredibly propulsive uh soundtrack of like uh hits of uh, of the time and it just so feels like being a free teenager even when they're in danger the movie has reset you to think of them from a teenager point of view yeah. where you don't fully recognize the danger they're in yeah uh, we're gonna live forever yeah exactly all right uh so we're on three now yeah. okay number three for me is asgar for hotties a separation um yeah i thought about that quite possibly the best script of the 2010s uh, it is so perfect, so flawless, and yet it doesn't feel cold and insulated. It, it, it understands the way people react to things. It, it feels almost like a mystery at times, but a very human mystery. Uh, the the dialogue is just uh, is just completely on point. And I will say, from from a filmmaking standpoint, sorry. Car alarms going off always distract me. I apologize. Um, hey, that's life in the big city. <laughs> I feel like you should be calling me kiddo at the end. <laughs> um, but uh, but the way the film is directed also, because um, I showed this, um, so I saw it in the theater, and then I showed it last year in my world cinema class, and the students who, despite taking a world cinema class, were apparently mystified that we were watching anything with subtitles. Um, Weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, had to they they often talked about how like a, a lot of the movies were just hard for them to watch none of them said that about a separation even though it is dialogue heavy so like yeah. their eyes kind of need to be locked into that lower third for the most part if you're not used to it um and yet many of them said it was their favorite movie of the semester uh because they were just so engrossed in this story that is incredibly tense and yet there is no music in it that is uh, the um i always forget the difference between diegetic diegetic and non-diegetic diegetic means it's in within the scene okay so yeah there's no non-diegetic music uh it's not overly stylized really not stylized at all like a lot of it is natural lighting or at least made to look natural like natural lighting compared to something like you know, under the skin, it's, it's night and day. Uh, it feels very almost like a docudrama. The, the, the camera work is very intuitive, um, often handheld. And so, so even without all of these external stylistic, uh, elements at his disposal, like Asghar Farhadi still makes the film incredibly tense Mm-hmm. and so engaging you are on everybody's side and nobody's side you you see 
things from this person's perspective and this other person's perspective. Um, and you, you just want everyone to come out ahead, but you know, that's not possible. Um, and so in that way, I wouldn't say the movie is cynical, but I think there's a, there's a grief to it. Uh, uh, which is to say, um, like when I think in terms of emotional grief or, or we talk about grief when we experience loss and one of the big aspects of losses uh, is this idea that you have no control over this situation. You cannot bring this person or this thing back. And so I think there's a great deal of grief to the film because you see so many characters whose lives, they, they do what they can to keep things under control, but the minute a, a second person comes into their life and then a third, then a fourth, that's everything just gets more and more diffused until nobody really has that much control, no matter how much they might be in control of their own actions. And so there's a real mournfulness that like all of these people just came slamming into each other. Um, and this is what happened. And there's a sadness, there's a rage and a real, empathy for for the characters on the part of of the director and the audience and uh it's uh, i just adore it it's it's also extremely rewatchable that's the other thing yeah you you talk about the um that screenplay and i, and I feel like it's a movie that kind of or just to describe the events of it you'd be like okay okay it's a melodrama because it's a movie that's like this happens and then this happens yeah and, but there's such a sense of inevitability to the mm-hmm. way that it unfolds and that's in the screenplay and in the direction uh as well yeah i really love that movie too which does lead me to wonder you know anytime you get into feelings where the characters aspects where the characters maybe don't feel like they're in control which is an, a feeling of inevitability it makes me wonder it's like okay well i know what that feels i know as an american where there's such an emphasis on freedom and like mm-hmm. getting to right. do what yeah. you're going to go do and like oh i want to get a divorce not that it's necessarily easy emotionally or logistically but it's probably easier than in iran and so uh so i do i do wonder like oh what would it be like to watch this movie yeah for you know in your in your native country all right, my number two is a movie. This is I'm going full in on this. Is just a a, a David Back special, okay? Because <laughs> I literally, as I only know personally one other person who has seen this movie. All right, it's our friend Scott and I, okay, who saw it and said this is a very David Back's movie. Okay, and I hate him for how right he was because when I saw it, I was completely blown away. This is another 2016, although it was released here in these United States in the first half of 2017. And it is Mikhail Marzak's all these sleepless nights. Mm -hmm. It's a Polish movie that is according to the director, a documentary. I don't know. It doesn't feel like a documentary, but I guess it could be. Um, It doesn't really have a story. It's basically, it spends a year with this college age Warsaw kid who, as far as the movie documents, all that he ever does is go to parties. And most of the movie seems to be shot at the tail end of these all night parties, like just before dawn or even at dawn. Sometimes when this kid is, I say kid, cause I'm an old man now. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this young man is, you know, drunkenly walking home, you know, trying to find a girl to leave the party with him or chatting up or, you know, most, that's where most of the movie takes place. And the camera is constantly just, gliding 
around the party alongside him behind him. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it feels, it just captures this mo- moment and it makes me, cause it reminds me of myself at the age when I was going to parties and potentially st- staying out all night, um, mm-hmm. which I don't really do uh, anymore. Um, Whatever, Grandpa. I know, right? Get I, with I, it. I don't know. I, who, have I, who have I become? <laughs> um, um, whom have I become? There we go. Anyway. Oh, uh, boy. I think you just answered your question. <laughs> um, and then one of the, the few, it's not even dialogue. It's, the character, most of the characters talk to each other, but this person, there's a scene where the character seems to be talking to no one else in the room. So either to himself or to the cameraman that we can't see the camera operator. And I even, I just referred to the subject as a character. I don't know if he is, but this young man, um, he's looking out the window of this apartment of his, of his apartment and there's fireworks going off. And he says something about how he read once that if you took all the time that the average person spends watching fireworks throughout their lifetime and put it together, it would be like four straight days of fireworks. And it sounds great. It's, it sounds great. But then he, like he talks about other things, like how much of your life do you spend doing this or doing this? And I think that's kind of a key to the movie that, um, we spend a year with this kid and mm-hmm. all he does is go to parties. And like, I started developing this, like, he's supposed to be a college student. Does he ever go to class? Yeah. Does he ever, you know, how, does he have a job? How does he afford rent on his apartment? You know? Uh, and then, but then you realize like, Oh, right. We're watching 100 minutes out of a year of his life. Yeah. This is the, this is just distilling. This is in a way, and this is, I say this because I'm the older guy, not that I'm old, old, but I'm older than this guy. I no mm-hmm. longer live like this the movie feels like my memories sure. of that, of that time in, in my life that when he looks back, he won't necessarily remember this party separate from this party. And in between I went to school and I went to work and I did this. He'll remember like, Oh, I remember going to parties with that group of friends that maybe I don't talk to anymore. And, um, and so even though the movie is, you know, made in the middle of this decade and released in the middle of this decade about the time it already feels like a memory. It already feels like an artifact from someone's, you know, the, the, someone's psychological, emotional past. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's an absolutely beautiful, uh, experience to, to have. So all these sleepless nights is the movie. All right. So on to my number two, uh, which finally answers the question, where was Tree of Life going to be okay. on my top ten? Uh, my number two is Terrence Malick's uh, The Tree of Life, which is a film I mentioned earlier. The way I look at Nashville, which is God's point of view, uh-huh. and here it's much more literalized. I feel like um, it, it's it's a movie uh, that is about everything, and well, I won't say nothing, but it's about everything and then one thing. You know, um, there are so. To, to watch people's reaction to the movie is I stopped being angry about it a while ago. Now I just find it delightful. Like when people, not that this is a film that's easy for me or anybody else to interpret, but to me, like people are like, why are there dinosaurs in this movie? This doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, because it's about everything. What are you, an idiot? <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think that's, that's the idea is that we are seeing things in a, 
I'm not, I won't put thing. I won't put everything specifically in a spiritual uh, context, but I'll just say cosmic. Uh, we're looking at things cosmically, and this idea of the world we live in, the galaxy, the universe we live in, and how insignificant we are as individuals, and yet. Every individual matters. Everybody's life is so very important, not just to them, but to the other people in their lives. And what does that look like? And all of the little, all, all of the little developments uh, in the life of our main character, the the young boy who discovers sexuality, discovers anger, not discovers, but like carries it out in a way that is just destructive. Um, and then we see these two parents, one of whom is very much about love and forgiveness and grace, and the other is very much about toughness. Mm-hmm. And not that not that he is without love, but that it's it's like if I do this too much, I'm not preparing you for this world. And so you, and then you see the two of them together. You see all of these aspects together in the young boy as he experiences the 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 back and forth within him of these impulses and the resentment that he feels towards his father, but also the, the attraction that he feels towards his mother and then the resulting shame that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I mean, in many ways it's, it's a biopic, but it's a biopic of everyone. Um, (laughs) and yet this, and yet it's still so specific. It's not, it's not trucking purely in allegory. Uh, it's still specific to these characters and their situation. Uh, but it's all seen through this larger cosmic lens. And some would say, not, not that I have heard anybody say this, but I think that if the movie were made, if the, if the same movie were made a little bit worse, an argument could be made that the director is saying that, you know, what is the, the problems of three people don't, don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy yeah. world. And yet what I think Malik is saying is like, it's the only thing that makes sense, you know? And I think, I think the, the recent film Ad Astra actually uh, plays into this a little bit as well. Um, that I don't have, I, I don't have any control over the dinosaurs. I don't have any control over history. I don't have any control over the future. Um, and I barely have any control over the present. All I can really do is try to understand myself and the people around me as best I can and try to extend love to them and, and, ask their forgiveness when I don't and then forgive them as well. And so I do think, yes, it is. It's there. I think there's a lot of Christian allegory in there as well, but I think that it's, there's, it's still more universal. I don't think you, I certainly don't think you have to be a Christian to appreciate it. Um, and so obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, but, uh, and all that is, so of course that's, that's about structure and all that, but the, the, it's use of music and it's use of, of cinematography, obviously all of this comes together into this great swirling novel, you know, but, but still undeniably cinematic. Yeah. It's like I said about uncle Bumi, surrender yourself to it. Yeah. Let it happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, man, I feel like, all right, we're in such a place of positivity. I don't want to say anything negative, but about uh, about tree of life about i know she's super famous now and i'm super happy for her but how i felt about jessica chastain at the end of 2011 i don't know that she's lived up to that she's made some good movies she's also made some really bad movies yeah like miss sloan and molly's game 
Right. Um, well, I mean, and to me, between Take Shelter, which was a big like Take Shelter was on the short list. Take Shelter, very it was high for very me, close yeah. to to making this list. Between Take Shelter and Tree of Life, I was like, "Who's this new face?" I'm looking. For, I didn't see the help, but that was the same year. Yeah. Um, and like then, you know, she's done some. She does have a good study, yeah. which is in like I liked her in a most violent year a lot. Yeah, she uh, was, and she was genuinely great in Zero Dark Thirty as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you didn't see Crimson Peak, I did right? See Crimson you Peak. did. Yeah. See, yeah. She's yeah. a lot of fun in that as yeah. well. Um, yeah, I think of it yeah. as a Mia Wasikowska vehicle, of course. Obviously. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah. and that's and that's the thing is that's that happens a lot. I was thinking about it the other day that like there will be a new it person. Like this year, it's Florence Pugh. It's oh, like yeah. Yeah. she's in tons of stuff, yeah. you know, uh, and she's great in all of it. In 2018, it was it boy, Joe, Joe Alwyn. Obviously. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that happens. And then the person just kind of settles into where they're going into what their niche is. And, but Jessica Chastain was the it girl of 2019 because she was in it. Hey, all right. Was that <laughs> all just a setup so you could uh, say that? No, okay. <laughs> you were the one who said it. Yeah, uh, I guess that's person, true. So I, uh, all right, moving on to my number one film of the year. Oh, um, number one film of the decade. Of the decade. Sorry, that's the second time I've done this. I've done, I've done that. Uh, I can't believe I've done this. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, my number one film of the of the decade, uh, and this goes back to. I'm bummed that I probably haven't seen it. Uh, I don't think you have, even though I think you'd really like it. But it goes back to something else I was saying about Uncle Boon Me. Is it's a movie that's not a horror movie, but is kind of a horror movie sure and that's uh olivier essayist personal shopper oh right yes uh we heard nothing but good things yes kristen stewart plays a personal shopper for a famous person I don't i'm think with we you ever, yeah i don't think we ever learn what this person if this person is a mm-hmm. famous actress or singer or just or a model maybe or an mm-hmm. influencer i don't know if they had do we have influencers yet in 2016 maybe probably anyway um you and i didn't but I think plenty of other people <laughs> did. Um, so that's her main job is that she's a personal shopper for a celebrity. Uh, but her other job or calling or whatever is that she is a medium who mm-hmm. can connect with ghosts and her brother was as well. And at the time the movie starts, he has just died or has died within recent months, maybe. And, She's sticky. She wants to quit her job as a personal shopper, but she's sticking around Paris because she and her brother had a pact that whoever died first would contact the other from the other side. So while the movie is about her driving around, trying on clothes, buying clothes, leaving yeah. them for this famous person she worked for, we barely see at all. Mm-hmm. She mostly just shows up at her empty like apartment and leaves the clothes and leaves a note or whatever. Um, and in between that, she's, like contacting the dead or potentially being contacted by the dead because there's a, someone keeps texting her throughout the movie. We don't know who it is. She doesn't know who it is. Obviously, you know, connecting A to B says maybe this is her brother. Doesn't feel like it. She definitely doesn't think of it. Right. think it is, but that's, um, that, that's part of the, uh, I think to the extent this movie is plot wise, it's a movie. I, I wrote down a, a, a note. Um, it, there is no logical answer 
to what all is going on in this movie, mm-hmm. but there might be an illogical answer. Sure. Uh, and that's what I find so, uh, enticing and transfixing about, about the movie. Um, similar, not that it's as, um, narratively off the rails as something like Mulholland drive, but it has a similar feel to me of, um, maybe there's something metaphysical that, brings all this together, but you'd never be able to put it into words. Mm-hmm. That's not what movies are for. Movies aren't for putting things to words. They're putting things to sound and image. Um, <laughs> uh, but she's be, she's looking for a sign from her brother. And yet she's in more than one occasion being giving, given things that I'm like, that could be the sign, mm-hmm. but she's willfully ignoring them. And I think the question is why is it, because she's skeptical of her own abilities as a medium? Is it because she doesn't want to accept to, you know, have this closure with her brother being gone? Like, why is she sort of being stubborn and being kind of in, in denial, um, and refusing to do what she needs to do with her life, which is quit her, uh, pointless job and go somewhere and somewhere else and, and be happy. Um, but again, like I said, all these questions are a- answered in a true battleship pretension style. They're not. A- so all these questions are raised. They are not answered. Yeah. Is the point that I was trying to make. I fucked it up. Uh, we'll, we'll go back. We'll take that again. Um, not really. <laughs> um, uh, and, and that's, like I said, that's a battleship pretension style. That's in David Beck style. It's very much up my alley. And the last thing I'll say is that some of the parts where ghost type shit happens are real scary yeah. and, uh, or not scary, scary, like jump or scream scary. But right. the thing I was talking about earlier, that skin crawling, you know, hair standing up on him on end, uh, goosebumps or goose pimples as some people will call them. And I like to call them that to gross out my wife. Uh, cause she <laughs> hates it. Uh, that kind of scary. So, uh, yeah, personal shopper, the I, best I, movie of the decade. And I kind of, this is one that I kind of, <coughs> uh, like Babe Ruth calling a shot. I think mm-hmm. like within days of seeing this movie, I was like, I think that's going to be the best movie of the decade. And again, yeah. nothing's knocked it off the, the pedestal. All right. So my number one, um, I'm going to tell you in advance that this is a film that increasingly I get emotional about when I talk about, uh, I, I get emotional when I talk about, um, so speaking of, uh, I forget what you were, what movie you were discussing when you say that, like, Movies that are about art are probably actually about Phantom filmmaking. Thread is what, it was. what was that? Phantom Thread was yeah, the yeah. I was talking about. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so my number one of the decade, and increasingly one of my favorite movies of all time, is the Coen Brothers Inside Lewin Davis. Good. Um, thank you. And it's a film that was not my number one uh, that year. Uh, I think it was my number three. And since then, that's 13. Since then, I've seen it and I've thought a lot more, you know, going by the criteria that like the movies that we just, our minds keep drifting towards. There are very few movies that my mind has drifted towards more often than inside Lewin Davis. Um, but you were going to say something. Uh, I, I always want to interject. Like you're in the middle of like serious shit and I'm like, Oh, bit of trivia <laughs> that no one cares about. I like that voice though. Uh, <laughs> inside Lewin Davis first movie I saw in the redesigned Chinese theater during AFI fest. Oh, you saw it in AFI fest. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so obviously 
it's gorgeous. Uh, Bruno Debanel is the is the cinematographer, and the film has just this this beautiful soft focus uh, and this really washed out winter light that just makes everything. It's just it's one of the coldest movies, and I don't mean emotionally. It's one of the coldest movies I can think of. Yeah, I think uh, about when he because he goes to Chicago. Yeah, and he gets off the bus and steps in a puddle. Right. Yeah. And I think I, having lived in Chicago, having been in Stephen Puddles when it's still there's still snow out, I think about how much God that sucks. Yeah, it's it's literally like oh his day's ruined. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even if the, his day goes well, he's never going to be able to totally enjoy it because that's his life for the rest of the day. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and there's everything is shot. I say not emotionally cold. There is a, there are a lot of uh, high emotions in the film, but I do think that it is also an extremely lonely movie. So like when he gets off the bus, he's like at a bus terminal and he's all alone, just walking along, uh, trying to make his music. Um, unsurprisingly, given the Coen brothers, it is also quite quirky and quite funny. Um, yeah. With, very, very odd characters coming into his life, um, whether it be John Goodman or Adam Driver or Stark Sands and these other characters that just show up and just make a slight impression because the world that he's living in, he's just kind of he himself almost feels like a ghost uh, drip, just kind of going through this world and encountering people and then continuing on with no real drive. Uh, but I will say that When I, I mean, the, the Coen brothers are some of the best filmmakers ever. And they have a very specific quality to them. So, like, when I say unsurprisingly, it's very funny. Their movies are usually have at least some humor in them. What I will say, though, is that I think that Inside Lewin Davis is, I'm going to say, by far their most personal film. Mm. Because when it comes right down, because, you know, we, we've talked about in the past, uh, and we're not the only ones to say it, other people have said it as well, that it's a film that at its core is about grief. Because his, his uh, Lewin's character, played wonderfully by Oscar Isaac, um, has, uh, he was part of a, of a duo, uh, a folk duo, and uh, his, his partner um, uh, killed himself. And so... Lewin is trying to kind of make a go of it on his own and he's incredibly talented. That's the other thing is the music all throughout the film is, is marvelous. So he's incredibly talented and you feel like, yeah, he can absolutely make it on his own, but it's not about that. It's about the fact that he suddenly has to. Um, and there are two Cohen brothers. Mm. One's going to go first. You know, and they're not old. Statistically. Statistically. Look, hey, you know what? Crazy, th- crazier things have happened. But, you know, when, because it's a movie about getting, uh, about, about grief, but I think it's also a movie about getting older, even though Lewin himself is not a, a not, not an older guy. But, you know, you, you see movies like The Irishman. You see movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then you see something like this, where it's all about, who am I now? I know who I was, but who am I now? And the, the difference here is that Lewin is asking this at a young age because his partner was, was taken from his life very quickly and suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, but I think with the Coen brothers, it's this all throughout. P- 
people are saying, you know, and, and in fact, the very last like assessment of his music is a character saying like, Oh, you should get a partner, like not knowing that he had one. And the Coen brothers, like they have been each other's creative muse for, for 40 years at this point. And at, and they're, they're getting older. They're not, you know, Clint Eastwood age or anything like that, but they're getting older. And I think this is their way of saying, we don't know which one, but one of us is going to die. And where is that going to leave the other one? Still tremendously capable, but never what he wants, what he was. And it's more than just the artistic output. It's also this person has been like this, the, the essence of stability, you know, Lewin has, he's had all these romantic relationships and, and, uh, that are really unstable and all that. The one thing he probably could have counted on was his creative partner and, and just, and it, that has now been taken from him. And so I feel like it's the, it's the Coen brothers trying to work this out for themselves. And as they do it, it makes me do it as well. And I think in terms of, you know, uh, what happened, what do I do if Jen were to suddenly die in a car accident? Or if you'll pardon me, what do I do if something happened to you? Like the, or more, or friend of the show, Jason Eakin, who I, mm-hmm. I go to go out to Denny's with once a week and we talk for four hours and, and we're there for each other and all that kind of thing. Like what? Sounds like you could just do the podcast with him. If I kick, if I croak, <laughs> you know what? Inside Lewin Davis is not that important to me anymore because I think <laughs> we've just solved it. Um, but no, I, I, it just, it, it forces me to look at the relationships in my life and wonder how do they define me? They don't define me completely, but a little bit like, and it's that idea, um, of like, it's, there's the, that line from the movie last orders, which is a not perfect movie, but I remember Michael Caine, his character is dying of cancer and someone asked him like, how are you doing? You know, how are you doing? And he goes, he goes, I'm he's in pain. Obviously he's like, I'm fine. It's, it's the going on that's hard, mm. you know, and Lewin inside Lewin Davis is, is about the going on and trying to figure out what possible sense life can make when these people that have been such a big part of your life are gone. And that's why there's no, there's no real drive to the film. That's just kind of walking around from one situation to the next, doing the things that you know how to do that you're good at, that you find some passion in, but still not totally sure what's the point, what the point of it is. Um, and so from a narrative standpoint, from, from this beautiful dreamlike cold visual quality to the acting, like all of it is just coming together to create a film about art and very good art at that, but also about loss, which then leads to a deeper value uh, of the people in our lives. And it's just a, it's, it's just such a, just a beautiful film. It's, it's my favorite movie of the decade. Well, those are our favorite movies of the decade. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts on the decade. Uh, Um, I, I, I don't. Um, obviously it's been a tumultuous decade in general. Um, when it comes to movies, I meant meant about movies. yeah. uh, Yeah. Uh, it's been interesting in some cases, disheartening, uh, to see certain trends specifically in Hollywood. Um, the centralization of power and in Disney, for example. Um, not that I dislike a lot of their products, but it's more just, I don't necessarily, I feel like it stifles creativity if it's all coming out of one studio. But, um, 
but yeah, I, I do notice, and this might be more an issue of me that like, when I look at these movies that I'm talking about, there is, I, 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 def, I use the word haunting a lot and not just because they, they stuck with me, but also there is just a quality, a, a, an ethereal and tangible quality to them. And I just wonder if, if directors, not just in the U S but worldwide, maybe in response to cultural shifts, maybe in response to political shifts, uh, just felt like delving a little bit deeper, but of course there have always been deep movies. So, so I'm not sure if I could wrap some wrap everything up in a, in a bow. You went further than I was going to. Oh, okay. Um, I, I just, what I noticed putting, um, the, my list together, looking at my list from 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. of the best films of the aughts, all 10 films, directed by men tonight i had uh, on this podcast four of my top 10 were directed mm-hmm. or co-directed by women um i know a lot of that is a part of my the a shift in my priorities that yeah. I intentionally tried to diversify which filmmakers i i seek out but i hope it's also uh, a trend towards more uh diversity uh in 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 general yeah and and i will say i mean this is Le- uh, maybe a less important point than that, but s- seeing certain trends, like obviously a more, uh, a bigger emphasis on, f- on female filmmakers and, and that sort of thing. But I will also say within certain genres, there have been like, like, I feel like there's been a real resurgence in horror, um, in the last probably five, six years, um, in which, cause I was thinking of the Babadook, but I, I'm also thinking of the witch, hereditary hereditary it follows like these films that have uh, an atmospheric quality to them but even even you know the the rise of of james wan i mean i know he started with saw but like the conjuring movies Mm. the conjuring is the only other successful cinematic universe aside from mcu um and just kind of these moody often family and relationship based uh horror films that some of them aren't incredibly financially pop, uh, successful, but horror fans are like, Oh wow, this is really something. Um, so it's been interesting to see that develop over the last 10 years. All right. Well, you can find us at battleship You can email us at David at battleship or Tyler at battleship Uh, I'm on Twitter at Davy pretension. Um, I'm trying to tell you what, Reviews are on the website uh, this week. Oh, you've got... Um, you've got a Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell, Uncut Gems, and Cunningham, the documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I reviewed all of those um, this this week. And so, so check those out. Uh, what else? Also, yeah, subscribe, rate, review, do all that stuff. It really helps us. Um, and uh, Tyler, you're on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, correct, yes. And then I'm also on Twitter at More Lessons, which is the Twitter for my other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is back. Uh, the most I'm doing episodes every two weeks. The most recent one is about Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, um, a film that uh, is right up there with Tree of Life as far as its uh, its quality and. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it. But um, and then also there's our Patreon, which uh, you can subscribe to. Yeah, I mentioned briefly earlier, at, a million years ago. Right? Yeah. Oh, who knows? Uh, but yeah, you, there are tiers at 
two, five, and ten dollars a month. Um, you can look up at uh, patreon.com slash battleship pretension what that uh, what all of those get you. Uh, this past our, week, if you want to go back even back into the previous decade, we did the uh, uh, our personal top five films of 2004. That's correct. The randomizer chose 2004 for us, and we gave ourselves five minutes to toss together a list, our personal lists. And I already had mine ready, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I give my, to me, that's part of the fun is uh, I give myself mm-hmm. a few minutes to put together a list. And you can hear us talk off the cuff about our uh, I'm off the cuff. Tyler's very uh, rehearsed yeah. uh, on our favorite top five films of 2004. So yeah, patreon.com slash battleship pretension. It really helps. All right. right, I think that's about it. Listening to this, all three hours of this. Thank you to listening to almost 13 years of battleship pretension. If you have been, Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 